0: Optimal
1: minimal.
0: At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would it in a perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. The Tim Show. This episode of the Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by Calm. I once asked LeBron James, you've probably heard of him, what is the single most important element of his training regimen? And I may have edged into it slightly differently, but in effect, that's what I was asking. And uh, you know what he said? He did not say wind sprints. Cryotherapy, maybe? Egg white omelets with a side of butternut squash? No. No. And although it sounds delicious, no. What he focused on, what he said was sleep. Whether you're an athlete, programmer, or student, healthy sleep that is restorative sleep is essential to peak performance. It strengthens your immune system, improves cognitive function, like problem solving and decision making, it gives you creativity and energy, or at least certainly fosters all those things that you want to bring into your day. And I've suffered with sleep, or I should say poor sleep for a very long time, and have sought out different tools to help me optimize and improve, not just the duration, but the quality of my sleep. And as a lot of us know, there's a common problem. Sound sleep is a rare thing, and this is particularly true when you're hyper-caffeinated, hyper-connected, hyper-stimulated in a modern digital world. But there is a place to get rest, and that is Calm, the number one app for sleep, downloaded by more than 60 million people. It's really easy to download. Just download Calm, and you'll find a whole library of programs designed to help you with healthy sleep like soundscapes, guided meditations, and more than 100 sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like those of LeVar Burton and Nick Offerman. Right now, listeners of The Tim Ferriss Show, that's you guys, get 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash Tim. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash Tim. To quote LeBron himself, you want to seize the day, you got to sleep the night. Check it out. Go to calm.com slash Tim. Get calm and get better sleep. Time to restore. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. These days, as you know, with a million messages per minute, not enough hours in the day, how do you really catch people's attention? This is where LinkedIn can help. With LinkedIn ads, you can catch the right professionals, the right people at the right time. And I'll tell you how I'm using them personally in a minute. LinkedIn ads can drive traffic to landing pages, for instance, engagement, and for many of you, most importantly, conversions, whether that's registrations for an event, downloads of white papers and ebooks, or other important metrics. Me, personally, I'm going to be testing LinkedIn ads to drive signups to my free newsletter, Five Bullet Friday, which I've realized drives just about everything else. With precise targeting through LinkedIn, entrepreneurs, startups, and SMBs, it's small, medium-sized businesses, can better and more cost-effectively reach the people who matter to them specifically. With more than 62 million decision makers on LinkedIn, you're able to connect with the business leaders or just the target audience who are most relevant to your company and deliver a clear call to action. That's always where I focus a lot of my energy, obviously, headline and call to action. LinkedIn ads allows you to cut through the clutter and ensure your messages are getting through to the people you most want to target. So huge, medium-sized, and small businesses alike are all making the most out of LinkedIn ads, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, you name it. So try it for yourself. LinkedIn is offering a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit to launch your first campaign. Simply visit linkedin.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss' show. Again, that's linkedin.com slash TFS. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens.
1: LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the
0: right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Hello, friends. This is Kevin Rose. I'm here with Mr. Tim Ferriss. Welcome to episode number 947 of The Random Show. <laughs>
0: You're losing your flair, man. <laughs> <laughs> what? What happened? I'm just busting. Wasn't that good? I'm just busting your balls. It was good, but you looked off to the side like Rain Man, which I liked on the video. Oh, did I? Yeah, yeah, but I like that. Oh,
1: shit. <laughs> I had my 10-year uh, meetup anniversary with Daria last night. Um, Is our t- official 10 years together, uh, f- from our first date, I should say. Yeah. And uh, yeah, had some wine. I hate wine. Yeah. Uh,
0: You know, this is, it's a love hate thing. So tell me about, tell me about it. First of all, congratulations, because 10 years is no joke. That's huge. Yeah, it is
1: huge. It has been a crazy ride with uh, lots of lessons learned, um, you know, kids, all kinds of insanity.
0: Now it's appropriate that you would have, I'm not sure if you're willing to go into this. I don't see why not, but it's appropriate that you guys would have wine last night because maybe you could talk about one of your first dates and how wine played into that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I basically walked into this bar. I, I had, well, I should back up. So, real, here's here's the the quick. I don't want to like spend an hour on this, but here's the quick little overview. I met Daria through Twitter, of all places. Yeah, and we met on Twitter because I was very fortunate enough to talk Ev Williams, the then CEO, to add me to the suggested user list. This is when Twitter had like 15 people on the suggested user list, so I was one of the default recommended people to a right. lot of of different folks. Right. So. This was before they used algorithms for all that stuff. So anyway, Daria ends up following me. She retweets me on on something that I'd mentioned Dr. Andrew Weil. She retweets that. I see her little twenty by twenty icon. I'm like, Who's this little sexy little icon?
0: Yeah, the green the green cutoff shirt, probably back in the day. Probably.
1: That sounds about right. And so I, I clicked through on it. And, you know, she said she's into wine, into food. Um, you know, she's a neuroscientist. I'm like, check, check, check. That sounds amazing. Uh, we should go hang out. And so ended up DMing her. Uh, we met up at a bar. I walked in, saw her, was blown away, and immediately realized I needed. Uh, a substance to
0: kind of like uh, to d- to dumb my nerves a little to, bit. Oh, I thought you were going to say to dumb her down so she would succumb to your charms. But <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think a little bit of both, actually. So
1: I ended up just walking up and bought a whole bottle of wine and brought it back to the table. And apparently she thought that was a pretty ballsy thing. She's like, no. who just buys a bottle of wine? But I don't know. I just felt like we were just going to sit there for a while. And I knew we had a lot of overlap. And even if we were just friends, like we'd have a lot to talk about. Yeah, for so, sure. So you know, that was the first date.
0: And I say dumb her down because for people who don't know, Daria is razor sharp and extremely intellectual, very well read, and uh, a scientist. So she's, she's extremely, extremely strong in the hardware brain department. Yeah,
1: she's really good at calling me on my bullshit, which is
0: great. It's important. Super important. It is. I think that's what good friends do, too, sometimes.
1: Yeah, no doubt, dude. Yeah. Uh, So what are we going to do on this episode? You had mentioned you wanted to
0: reflect back on the last 10 years, right? Well, I was thinking we could talk about resolutions we could talk about for 2020 or anything that we've thought about for 2020 and also look back over the last 10 years, which is crazy for me to even contemplate. I was looking at some of the landmarks along the way and it simultaneously seems... Not long ago at all, and a hundred years ago,
1: well, dude, I would love to continue this little theme that we started on because I know your fans always like to hear this stuff is like talk to me about your last ten years of relationships Ooh. no, I know that's tough, yeah. but like a lesson lessons learned like for let me just start off with a thirty second version. My lessons learned are find someone that you're always on the same team with, so knowing that you're together in this versus fighting someone or having to like. You know, have your own side is a big one. And the second thing for me was therapy, like therapy. And what got me here today in a very happy, positive relationship is Daria and I at multiple times went to a therapist and sat down and had a third party kind of analyze and help us work through some of these issues so that we could figure out how to be on the same team. But I'd love to hear, like, I mean, I've known you personally for a long time, so yeah. I've seen you th- through all c- types of
0: oh. ladies. <laughs> oh yeah, we have we have mutually assured destruction on this one. If, That's if right. we That's if we, right. if, we go, if either of us no go nuclear, but uh, we have seen we've watched each other with many different relationships and trials and tribulations and learning, learning moments, teachable moments. I would say that looking back. There are a few things that are very present for me now that m- may have come through some really bad decisions in the past, uh, and also just just kind of mileage, right? I mean, you you start to realize better what you need over time, also. Yeah, polarity number one, I would say, is extremely important. And what do you, what do you mean by polarity? Yeah, we could spend a lot of time discussing various ways to consider polarity, but what I mean by that is, let's just say you have a sliding scale. And this is probably going to get me in all sorts of trouble. So for people listening, I don't care if you're Martian, U.S., Japanese, male, female, trans in between, there there are different types of polarity. And uh, I'm going to use probably heteronormative language. So if you want to crucify me, go for it. But let's just say you have a slider that goes out this way. And right in the middle, you have not as related to and anatomy, but rather characteristics, what let's arbitrarily call like pure androgyny in the center. Okay. And then you have okay. feminine characteristics, and let's just assume for the sake of argument that each person is going to decide for them what that means. But feminine characteristics this direction, masculine characteristics this direction. So you have sort of, and then what i have observed for myself and also in a lot of my friends is that it's it's sometimes very helpful to find someone who is equally far away from that middle point in the opposite direction right so if you have someone who is maybe hyper excessively developed in terms of masculine traits however you want to look at that uh, very often they're going to pair well from what I've seen, with someone who is as far in the opposite direction. And likewise, like this, right? And there are there are books that discuss that discuss this. I read The Way of the Superior Man a hundred years ago by David Data, which talks a lot about this. And I don't agree with everything in that book, but I do think polarity, maintaining polarity, enhancing polarity, which can be done through any number of of different practices or uh, reframes, I, I think, is, is very important for maintaining a relationship where there is uh, intense attraction and uh, healthy a healthy sex life. For for instance, right? I think that's very important. So that's one. Two would be, and this relates to what you said: having structure for cultivating the relationship. That could come in the form of therapy. It could come in the form of having, say, a date night once a week, having Mm -hmm. a couple's day once a quarter, which I do with my girlfriend, where we spend a day talking very candidly about the things we like, the things we're afraid of, sort of fears, desires, boundaries, negotiating new things, testing new things, et cetera. And we spend an entire day doing that. It's blocked out and it's known in advance that's going to be once a quarter. We have different types of, say, systems, if you want to call it that, for uh, cultivating the garden before it's in trouble. Does that, does that make sense? I think that mm-hmm. that for a long time all was well until there was a code red and things would devolve. People wouldn't say things they needed to say. Mm-hmm. Resentment might build and then something would explode. And yeah. then everyone is firefighting, trying to figure it out. And by that point, emotions have run so high. Elbows are coming out and it, and it doesn't mean both sides, but uh, very often elbows would come out from someone uh, and, it would just devolve very quickly. So, how,
1: how do you handle when you when you have these? Because everyone has disagreements, and they have these little things that may rub them the wrong way when you're in a relationship. Yeah. And there's this balance between you know taking everything personally and just you know constantly responding back to your partner, being like, I didn't like this, I didn't like that, I didn't like this, and then it becomes this like little nitpicky yeah. type of relationship versus, you know, some of it you may want to just bundle up and discuss at a later point in time. Like, how do you know when something reaches a certain threshold to where you bring it up with your significant other?
0: Yeah, I have, uh, and, and I don't I don't mention my girlfriend's name because the internet's fucking crazy, so I like to try to protect her. You guys are both public figures, so it's part of the game, um, in a sense, uh, for, for you guys. But in any sense... Um, or in any case, I should say. That's why I'm referring to my girlfriend as my girlfriend. But she and I generally will batch. And I think that's in large part because I'm very sensitive. I'm a sensitive guy in a lot of ways. And I don't use sensitive. I used to view that word in a very negative light, a very negative connotation, because we think, oh, he's so sensitive, meaning he or she takes everything personally. But I had one of my closest friends, who you've met actually, before, uh, asked me maybe two years ago, he said, when did you know that you were really sensitive? And Mm -hmm. the question really confused me. And I'm going to get back to the relationship and timing question. What I realized is my instrumentation in certain ways is just very, very sensitive. It's almost like a scale. It just has more decimal points for certain things. Mm -hmm. And I find a lot of stimulation overwhelming. And for that reason. So At a young age, I learned how to turn that off or numb that sensitivity. But I don't want to do that in a relationship. So over time, in the last 10 years, also learned that turning off or compartmentalizing emotionally is short-term effective, long-term very destructive. Mm. Coming back to the timing question, so I'm still very sensitive to having things i might perceive as criticism or suggestions that require me to make decisions coming at me at like 3 p.m. on a weekday if i'm in the middle of some type of phone call or project or writing whatever it might be and there are there are some timing solutions to that there are also structural solutions right so my girlfriend tends to work at home and i work downtown i have a separate place that i use for work that in and of itself solves a lot of problems and right, right? and it's and it's and you don't have to Figure it all out being within twenty feet of each other at all times. like that is a perfectly valid answer, right? So that's one. Number two is that uh, we will block out time, say we'll block out two hours or three hours on a given night. i'm I'm making this up, but let's just say once every two weeks where we'll do batching. And the format of that is not what we tested in the beginning, which was like let's voice all of our complaints. <laughs> uh, but when we started with that, in other words, this like litany of charges against each other in the beginning, it it poisoned the well and, and turned into a very unpleasant uh, experience for both of us that we didn't look forward to, right? We kind of dreaded doing it. And uh, my girlfriend suggested a much better format because I'm like, hey, good news takes care of itself. Let's just like tell me the bad news. But <laughs> it turns out yeah. that's also pretty... Uh, counterproductive in a lot of cases. So we start with what we think the other person is doing really well since the last batching session and what they're paying attention to and what we like. Then we will talk about what we think we are doing well. Personally, as a partner, and then what we would like more of. And the phrasing is really important, right? It's not what you're fucking up, it's what I would love more of. So it's sort of positive reinforcement if we're thinking about it like dog training, right? You're trying to shape a behavior. Instead of whacking the dog with a newspaper, you're giving a little Scooby snack to push them in the right direction when they get something approximately right. And that's the format. So we do that. And what's important to us at least, maybe important to me, important to both of us is we take notes. So if there are commitments that are made or important points that are brought up, we have something that we can then refer to before the next batching session and we can see where homework wasn't done. Yeah. And... If some, that sounds really powerful just to have that. I mean, I like the way that you structured that because I could see very
1: quickly how that could just be a negative kind of bitch fest if you don't have that structure around it. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I'm and I'm extremely lucky that my girlfriend's a very clean fighter. That's something I've also learned is mm. extremely important because the good times are the good times. But yeah. uh, I I've. I've heard someone i don't remember who said this but the quote is not that adversity builds character but adversity reveals character and you really want to know that your partner can navigate rough emotional waters when things are difficult and not immediately pull out a gun and shoot you in the face <laughs> you know yeah
1: i mean i'm yeah. very fortunate there too that's something that daria has taught me a lot is that it just where are you coming from in this discussion like where if and it's if it's a, from a place of i want us to be stronger and better together and we are on the same team trying to solve the same problem yep. then it's a it's it's very constructive versus it being about tearing down someone
0: yeah there's a there's a framework that the conscious leadership group uses Jim Detmer Diana Chapman and so on that i like quite a lot i was introduced to their book which i think is the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership uh, by Dustin Moskovitz a long time ago, a couple of years ago. And they have this concept of being above the line or below the line. And I'll let people look it up if they're interested. But it's a very easy way to check in with yourself or with someone else to see how they are engaging in a conversation or how you're engaging in a conversation and if it's likely to go sideways or if it's more likely to be constructive. And so The phrasing they use is sort of above the line or below the line. Uh, And I have found all of these helpful. And I think in part, what I'm trying to say is that what's important is not that you use exactly someone else's system or someone else's habits, but that you think about developing and using systems or structure of some type. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so
1: many people out there, and I was one of these people as well, just believed that if you find the right person, everything will be fine. You know, I was always like looking for that perfect person and it just, it just doesn't exist, you know, like we're unique creatures. And so, you know, the second you can realize that and then you realize, well, I do need a framework for this. You're just going to be in such a better
0: place. What what resources or practices have you found Helpful in your relationship aside from the therapy. And when you were doing the therapy, when you found it most impactful, how often were you doing it? How long were the sessions? Was there a particular type of therapy? What did that look like?
1: Yeah, basically, on the therapy side, it was about an hour long session, and we would go once a week, and we did that for a couple months. And really, that was um, her position is like, I'm not a mediator here, I'm here to give you and teach you tools. So that you can go off and do this on your own, um, you know, this isn't about, uh, you know, the chiropractor method where you just have to keep them back for one more session, your back will be fixed, you know. <laughs> so she was, she was actually Daria's in that right now. I'm, tell, I'm like, keep telling her, stop going to the chiropractor. Um, <laughs>
0: anyway. Yeah, you got to make sure they're not, you know, adjusting you one week and then putting it back to how it was the next week and then just rinsing right. and repeating.
1: Ex- exactly but um you know once we had those skills and i and i think a lot of it came down to the language we use with each other and then also just stopping before the conversation even begins and realizing and both acknowledging that the conversation we're going to have is so that we can figure out the best path forward because we both deeply love each other yep. and we want to find a solution to this and so that kind of just like just starting up from that, if you can both get in that mindset, it just really diffuses things right off, yeah. right off the bat. Yeah. And that's,
0: that's like 90% of it. Yeah, language, I am embarrassed how long it has taken me as someone who is supposedly a writer to pay close attention to the language I use with my partner. <laughs> and I've always been semi-aware of the language that I'm using, but I've, I've very often become impatient and wanted to cut to the chase in conversations where that is kind of like lighting your hair on fire and then looking for the fire extinguisher. It's, it's <laughs> backfires more than it helps. And nonviolent communication has uh, been uh, a door that opened a lot to me in the sense that there, there's a framework for nonviolent communication. People can look this up. The audiobook of the same name was recommended to be by Neil Strauss initially. And what it made clear to me is that if you phrase things such that you are taking full responsibility for your experience and your emotions, it really disarms people and helps to avoid a lot of headbutting and defensiveness. For example, Mm -hmm. one of the phrases that my girlfriend uses a lot, there are two things she does that I think are very remarkable. Uh, At least that's, that's, that's how I felt and it's how I still feel. Number one is she will very often preface any type of criticism with the story or something that's bothering her. She'll say, the story that I'm creating in my own head is that you dot, 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 right? You did X because you wanted me to feel Y and therefore it hurt my feelings. But it's fundamentally different from saying you did X to make me feel Y. Right. My response to to the first is very soft and I'm engaged and I listen versus the second. The second thing she does, which I think is very mature and that I've copied, is there are times when I'll ask her a question. Maybe we've had an argument or, what, or maybe simply it's been a difficult day. I might ask her, what's wrong? What's on your mind? And she'll say, Mm, I have a lot on my mind, but I'm going to spend some time processing it. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little tired or a little upset, and I feel like if we talk right now, I'm just going to make a mess of things. So let's talk later. So she will veto my attempt to engage if she feels like she is emotionally in a place where the content or tone of the conversation might take us sideways, hmm. and then. Next morning, she'll be like, great, can we, can, we, can we put some time on the calendar to talk? Maybe we can go out to dinner and get in the calendar. Then she's in a better place after a good night's sleep, some exercise, and then we talk. And yeah. I have, as someone who has often been in a rush to rip off the Band-Aid with everything, found that very wise and really, really effective. So I've applied that not just in my interactions with her, but with other people also. Right. If they call me for a big conversation about something that's sensitive and I'm exhausted, maybe I drank too much coffee, I'm a little twitchy, then I will use effectively the exact same phrasing to reschedule.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. I've never thought of that. And it's it's like it's makes complete sense. I mean, just hitting pause for a moment to, to recalibrate, And I think sleep plays a big role in a lot of this stuff, like I will feel completely different about a subject the next morning when I, if I woke up and had a good night 's
0: sleep, you know oh yeah yeah well that's that's on my <laughs> it's on my my list of things that yeah uh, certainly you know I have all these lists in front of me, but how have you been thinking about either twenty twenty or the last Decade, because I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this and I'm not done thinking about it, but what is anything that comes to mind in terms of looking forward to 2020 or looking back from 2010 to 2020 for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when I look back, I try to think about a couple things. What were some of the big aha moments that I had that, um, when I look at, I'm like, gosh, wish I would have done that sooner, but you know, there's not much you can do because they happen when they happen and that's fine. Um, and then, you know, what's worked well and what do I want to continue forward with and continue to bring forward into, you know, this new decade. And then also what are some of the things that I totally missed the boat on that I need to go. And especially now given my age, now that I'm, you know, well into my, well, not well into my forties, but I'll be 43 this year. Um, what do I want to address to set me up for the long term? And so that's that's how I've kind of been putting these things into buckets.
0: What what do you have in any of those categories? I'm particularly interested in the last one, but uh, I'm interested in all of them. Any 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 examples that you can give?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I, I wrote down a handful of things when I was when I was kind of doing my prep for the new year. Um, Looking back on the last decade, the one thing that I didn't do soon enough was admit to really to myself and to others that, you know, I didn't know certain things. And I think the the quicker you are to come forward with the fact that there is a hole in your knowledge, um, the quicker that hole will be filled. And I think that, you know, oftentimes I tried to cover that up because, you know, you get in certain situations you know, when I was working at, let's say, as a partner over at Google Ventures, or you know, and you're working with people that that um, seem to be a little bit more well-rounded than you in certain areas, and there's this kind of like uh, fear of, oh, maybe they'll find out that I really don't know as much as they think I do, or you know, and you have these little holes, and it can be in all different aspects of life, and I, I've just. I've kind of like given up on that in the last couple of years and just been like, screw it. Like if I don't know something, I'm going to come out and just say so and just try and pick it up from, from mentors. So was so turning people rather than treating them as like someone that's going to judge me is to someone that I can learn from. And that has been just something that in you know probably the last few years I've gotten a lot better at, but earlier in the decade, I just really avoided and, and hid from people. So that was you've always been really good at that, though you're you're the master of learning new things and, and admitting when you don't know something.
0: Oh, thanks for saying that. I uh, that is, I mean, I've got plenty of plenty of weaknesses, but I, I do think that I am, uh, for whatever reason, very good at very quickly saying I have no idea what that is or who that is.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: and uh, I think the podcast has helped, quite frankly because people bring stuff up and I'm like, if I pretend not along, like I know what's going on, this could, right. this could get really ugly. <laughs> so if they're like, do you see this movie? I'm not going to be like, oh yeah, great movie. And then I'm like, oh, right. I'm going to get called on this. So I, I've become faster at saying, I have no idea who that person is.
1: Where do you think your holes are right now? Like if in, in, in your kind of like, I mean, cause I know you have dabbled in so many different things and yeah. we share that common interest. Like, where do you think like, gosh, I really wish I
0: was a little deeper in this given area. Well, it's an area that I've spent a lot of time studying and focusing on in the last six to nine months which is saying no and creating rules and policies that allow you to say no easily or more qu- and or more quickly right uh, so I, I think I've over
1: you've been practicing that for a while though
0: because you, you know, you've
1: been saying no to investing
0: for a very long time yeah I, I haven't I have.
1: been able to get you to invest
0: in a deal and like 10 years. Yeah. yeah. It's And that is, and the result of that, or I should say, the reason that is something I've been able to do is that I set a policy and made a public announcement in, I want to say, 2015 that I was stopping startup investing. And so you, you can analyze very easily, actually, why it's easy for me to do that versus say no to some other things. And <clears throat> a commitment that I've wanted to make for 2020 and beyond. And this was informed by a Seth uh, Godin blog post, actually, that I that I put in my newsletter in Five Below Friday about uh, not trying harder, but creating better systems and rules instead. And there are a number of anecdotes in that that really drive the point home. It's a very short piece. People can find it. It's one of the most popular on his entire blog of his 10 million posts that he has. So... I've been looking for, and I know you're a fan of the book Essentialism, and Greg McKeown yeah. was on the podcast not that long ago. Uh, the filter that he uses that I'm trying to also use more is where can I make one decision that removes 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 decisions? So the startup retirement is a great example. It's public. It's something I can point to. It's accountable or I can be held accountable. It's not personal, right? It's been depersonalized. And that has removed so much stress in my life. It is is—it is hard to overstate how...
1: What, what do you think, but where did that come from? Because when I think about the things that I've seen you say yes to in the past... They've been these epic things like adventures, travel, like new different types of, you know, things from doing sauna and ice training or you name it. Like you've done so many crazy body hacks. It's yeah. like that was all because you said yes to everything. Like so where are you saying no to now? Yeah.
0: It's well, I should say that the what's important to note there is I thought you were going to mention startups, but it applies in the same way is that the the there's a survivorship bias in the sense that what I say yes to is visible, or my friends at least might be aware of it. But behind the scenes, I'm saying no to almost everything. And I'll give you an example of something that I've I've been thinking about. So first, I, I have an announcement already on the blog and so on, which says, I do not do book, blurb, uh, book blurbs. Book blurbs. <laughs> and... Uh, that was a decision I made because I didn't want to have to pick and choose among friends, which could create all sorts of bad blood and, and drama that I didn't want in my life. And therefore, I decided on a blanket, nobler policy. policy. Uh, nonetheless, I still get sent dozens of books every week by publishers who have put me on their spam mail lists. Uh, I have dozens of unsolicited books that get sent to me. And I have many Dude, books. Dude, I get the
1: same thing. The and same I don't know thing. how to turn it off. Yeah, it's you, like spam. It is.
0: So I, I'm going to maybe do some, some public shaming with these publishers. So publishers, if you're listening, please take me off your mailing lists. I have not asked ever to be on a single one. But I won't hurt the authors. Don't worry about that. I'm not going to shame the authors because I don't think... I'm
1: going to start sending you random books like life, unsolicited life. now to you. Such a fucker.
0: <laughs> such a fucker. But the, what I realized is I'm the the no-blurb policy isn't enough. It's not upstream enough to to try to address the problem because I'll still get tons of books. And if you do the math, right, you read The Tail End by Tim Urban, you realize I might only be able to read, I don't know, a few hundred books before I bite the dust, let's just call it. Uh, If we're looking at good books that take a long time to digest, uh, some of the classics, let's say, you do not have the luxury of reading books that you are not in full stoke about. And uh, part of finding books that are more likely to invoke full stoke is looking at books that have stood the test of some time. It doesn't need to be 100 years, but it could certainly be five years, 10 years, something like that. So one of the commitments that I'm making, and this is, this is the first time I'm talking about it, for 2020 is I'm not going to read any new books. And new books means no books published in 2020. I'm not going to read any books published in 2020. And that Hmm. will immediately, I'm going to write a post about that. It will be public and I'll just be like, hey, that's the policy. So for whatever reason, once making that announcement, I will be ridiculed and called a hypocrite and given unending shit from my loving audience because that's what they should do if I betray that. right? So I have to be very, very thoughtful about making that type of decision, but that removes so much of like the FOMO, the neomania, the keeping up with mentality that I think that could really, really, really return a lot of dividends. So that's one blanket One of the things
1: I want want to call out, and I'm curious to, you know, we can, the thing I, the reason I like talking about this is like, we, we know each other pretty well. And I, I I like to like poke in a little bit further. (laughs) Um, poke away. Th- the one thing I'm, i I've realized with you is you um and, and correct me if I'm wrong or what What? how you feel about this, uh, I'm curious to see. Oh god, oh god, that's a lot of a lot of softball <laughs> no, 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 no. it It's it's <laughs> it's not it's not bad. But I when I think about you, you have when I first met you, um you were relatively unknown yep. in that you didn't have a big following. That's right. Uh you had your your book coming out and You know, people were excited about that, but you know, nothing compared to what you have today. No, my mom and Um,
0: a few friends read my blog. That was about it,
1: right? So, I'm curious, like when I hear you say things about like you know, publishers are sending me too many books, like, uh, and I I want to make sure not to do blurbs and things like that. It feels to me like you've been bombarded. Yeah. With like too much to where you feel overwhelmed. Yeah. It's like everybody wants something from Tim. Like the number of times that people that have like pinged me and be like, "Dude, you know Tim? Can you send him this yeah. thing?" Blah 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 blah. It must just be anxiety provoking into some sense, in that you're being pulled in so many different directions. It's like, in a way, I mean, you're not like celebrity. Like you know, you walk down the street, and I'm sure people do recognize you, but not to the sense that not like a a, a massive Brad. movie star, or Brad Pitt or something like that, right? Yeah. But does that Is that true? And is that starting to like does that bother you? Does that get under your skin a little bit? It feels like it's a lot for you to handle.
0: It's a lot. I as someone who is also taking the armor off of a lot of these sensitivities because I want to cultivate them instead of pushing them underwater, it's a challenge to do that while simultaneously being bombarded with so much stuff, for sure. I mean I was I was pulling up my phone just to look at uh unread email six hundred and eighteen thousand nine hundred and fifty two holy crap right then i have two hundred and seven why don't you tr- I have what you seeing that two hundred and eighty seven unread text messages right so uh i'm ninety nine notifications on asana it goes on and on but the the point being i don't expect much sympathy because these are taxes that I pay for also, a wide range of different types of access and so on that I do have from yeah, the size. Yeah,
1: private jets. And-
0: <laughs> no private jets. No stuff. private jets. <laughs> I'd like to use yours. When it's idle, I'll take your yeah. private jet. Uh, I'm happy to cover the, the beverage cost. Uh, the nice. <laughs> But... It, it, is, it's, it is challenging from an energetic management perspective, right? So I find as I get older and looking back at the last decade and looking forward to 2020, that time management is important, but time management doesn't matter unless you have attention management, right? Because you can stare at a screen and have blocked out two hours, and if your mind is wandering right. all over the place and you're getting hit with push notifications and you can't focus, it is rendered useless, let's say. So you have time management, attention management, and then if you even have, I'm sorry, you have time, attention, and then even if you have attention, and these are related, but if you are lethargic, you haven't slept well, or you have been depleted from making too many decisions, mm-hmm. you are going to make poor decisions, or the likelihood of mm-hmm. making bad decisions is really high. And
1: i Well, there's also prioritization of things at that point, sure. right? Because yeah. you need to know how to prioritize certain things. Otherwise, you could spend time on the wrong things and right. attention on the wrong things.
0: Right. So, I mean, it could be a zen, uh, Zen. Well, well, it could be zen, but it could be a Venn diagram with, say, five or six interlocking circles. And you're right. looking for that sweet spot. And uh, a big part of that is energy management. The only, or one of the best tools I have found for that is looking at your inbound and your projects in terms of categories, looking at, as I did just recently, my last year, looking at energetic peaks and energetic troughs, like what robbed me of energy, the types of things. Not single things. Single things can be helpful, but the types of things. Were they speaking engagements? Were mm. they long conversations with lawyers? Were they, you name it, spending too much time in cities? Taxes. Taxes. Right? K-1s. K-1s. Yeah. Oh, K-1s. <laughs> love, those, love those K-1s. Herding cats. Love those K-1s. Yeah. Uh, and, all of that what are the categories of things that have depleted your energy? And what are the categories of things that have given you energy? And So what were those for you? I'm curious. Especially on the giving energy side. Giving energy side, extended time in nature, for sure. Mm-hmm. Is, so you like the forest bathing stuff? And Yeah, I just spent two weeks in Utah and spent almost that entire time with at least an hour or two in the mountains every day. And uh, it was incredible i mean incredibly recharging i was getting a lot of activity every day because that is certainly interrelated with sleep quality sleep onset and so on lots mm-hmm. of activity exposure to sun and so on it made a huge difference and i came back to i love austin but it, it's funny how these these shifts can be so relative if i go to new york city and then i come back to austin I, I get off the plane, let out a huge sigh of relief. I'm like, oh, thank God. My blood pressure drops 20 points and it's extremely relaxing. But going from these secluded mountains of Utah to downtown Austin around rush hour, I found completely overwhelming. Uh, so I've been very, very tired for the last few days since I got- You're
1: going to be in a cave, in, a, Utah. I a cave. <laughs> in Utah. I might be in a cave.
0: I might be in a cave. Yeah, so I, that that's one that I find very energizing. Number two would be- creative work before problem solving or or managing anything or anyone. So having time blocked out in the morning to do some type of creative work. It doesn't have to be writing a long blog post or a chapter. It doesn't have to be a painting. It could just be taking a photograph on a hike to share on Instagram, right? But something that is productive in the most literal sense, like it's producing something that in some fashion uses a creative muscle. I find that sets an emotional tone for hours afterwards or the entire day afterwards. It's really more important than I would have expected to have that. Hmm. Uh, There are, there are lots of other things, but uh, what about yourself?
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, um, well, and you mean just mean in terms of things that energize me?
0: Yeah, or thinking about twenty twenty things you want to do more of versus or things you want to do less of.
1: Yeah, I've I've picked some very specific things. Um, one of them is no BPA or plastic this year, so I'm not. I will not drink a beverage out of any type of tin can. They're all lined with BPA on the inside. Um, so and no plastic containers. So I'm using all glass for anything that I drink out of. Um, And so that's been a big thing for me. I just kind of want to get away from plastics in general. Um, Aside from that core strength, I I throw my back out as as old and lame as it sounds a couple times over the last six months, probably carrying kids too much. But I, I, um, so I've been getting more into, I've been doing PT, some physical therapy around that. Also, um, getting back into Pilates, and then uh, Peter Tia, who you've had on the show multiple times, he recommends um, a system called uh, Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization, DNS. DNS. And so, have you heard about this at
0: all? Uh, you know, I have read of it. That's that's a tough acronym to choose for the internet, but yes. Yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> so, so that's something that Peter's been into over the last, you know, probably year plus, and uh, I'm starting to get into as well, so... Uh, really excited about kind of building that foundation. You know, Peter has this thing where he talks about the uh, centenarian Olympics. Like, what do you want to be able to do when you're 100? Like, you want to be able to get out of a pool without, like, you know, climbing steps. And like, so I, I really, I think now is the time in our life where we could set ourselves up for that, that future. So I really want to start taking that seriously. Um, the next thing is a big one for me, and that is um, really tracking um, both, uh, well, mostly my, my drinking over time. So I want to be very mindful about how much alcohol I'm consuming. And so one of the things I did is um, I worked with the folks over at at Xero, the intermittent fasting app that that I started a couple of years ago. Um, There's a whole team around that now. And they built an app uh, uh, called Less, L-E-S-S. And so that just launched on January 1st. And it helps you. It's completely free. There's no ads or anything like that. But it just allows you to track all of your alcohol consumption. And you can set maximum amounts of drinks per week. You can see your week-over-week, month-over-month progress. Um, And it's just a great kind of like beautiful little calendar um, to track uh, and eventually compare with friends Uh, so we could be able to have, you know, like a friend group and see who's drinking what, but it's, there's something, there's some accountability there that could be pretty interesting. So, uh, they started off by me and a buddy, my buddy, Mike Mazer, just tracking all this stuff in a spreadsheet and we just had it in a Google sheet, but it was a pain in the ass to kind of put in new, new figures every day by opening up a spreadsheet. So now we have it in a, a little app form. So that's a, a big piece of it. Also, I've been getting into home automation a lot for my house. So I really have finally think that home automation is, is, is here and, and not in the way I thought it was going to be, but I, I've been starting to mess around with a lot of that stuff just to set up routines for my house to consume less energy and, and really just uh, coordinate different things around the house, get, get, bring more music into my life. And so part of that is just making it super simple to kind of like play and automate throughout the house.
0: Yeah, I uh, I was thinking about this call and this conversation, and uh, took all sorts of notes. And uh, when I look over it, I mean, a lot of this all comes back thematically to energy awareness and energy management, uh, and looking for at least in my case some of the energy drains that you're simply or I'm simply unaware of or have been unaware of for a long time, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I had Jerry Colonna, you may know the name, the uh, the coach with the spider tattoo, I believe was the name of the podcast, but he he's, uh, does exec coach work with all sorts of CEOs and so on. And he had a series of questions that, that really struck me that I've revisited a lot since my conversation with him and I did over New Year's and I'm still looking very closely, and I'll paraphrase, these aren't going to be perfect wordings, but roughly the questions are, how am I complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? Mm -hmm. Right? So how how am I actually very, perhaps subconsciously, but nonetheless, very actively creating the conditions that I bitch and moan about? Right? Mm -hmm. That's one. The other is or there are three others you know what needs to be said that isn't being said and another way to phrase that would be what am i not saying that needs to be said that's actually a huge one for me and i'll, I'll come back to that what's being said that i'm not hearing i think that's very helpful for me at least in the context of a relationship and what am i saying that's not being heard i don't i don't uh, feel too focused on that one but what needs to be said that isn't being said i think that uh, from a very young age for whatever reason or a number of reasons, I have uh, protected a lot of people who have inflicted harm on me, and that the goal is not to make twenty twenty the year of vengeance <laughs> uh, but rather to recognize at least for myself i've had I've had a number and by a number, I mean probably six to eight very uncomfortable conversations in the last Two
1: weeks. Are these relatives or friends or what, what are across, you talking across about Across
0: the board. Across the board. So these could be people I've worked with for a long time, could be family, could be close friends. And by uncomfortable, I don't mean confrontational necessarily. So some of these are talking to people about episodes or issues or old wounds that were never fully cleared. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And trying to do so in a way, based on all the wonderful schooling I've had from my girlfriend, and I mean that uh, very sincerely in communication, doing it in a way where everyone comes away from the conversation, ideally feeling better, but doing it first and foremost to say what you feel you need to say and recognizing that you cannot control the response of the other person. So not going in with any hope or expectation of how someone will respond, but simply to clear the air.
1: And do you think that's because you're feeling the burden of that? A hundred percent. So you have
0: these things that are
1: unsettled basically. And you're like, I need to like, just like have this, uh, release it
0: basically. I mean, you release that by having a conversation with them. Yeah. And some of these things are months old, some are years old, some are decades old. And it could also be, uh, On the flip side, things that are very positive, but for instance, reaching out to mentors who I never properly thanked, you know, people who really helped me and kind of saved me in a way during high school years, reaching out and if I get voicemail, leaving a really heartfelt thank you for all the help that they gave me that at the time I was just too young. I don't want to blame it on youth though, self-absorbed maybe, caught up in my own shit, to realize just how valuable they were and how much thought they put in to helping me, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's been so freeing, I have to say. Uh, So so those questions are questions that I want to pay, in addition to other questions, a lot more attention to in 2020. Because there's been such a process for me of unburdening. And uh, I don't know if you've had this experience, but... Let's just say you have a backpack and it's full of shit that you've been carrying around for months, right? There's just stuff that sits in there. could be like, oh, yeah, the ball I think I'm going to roll my feet out on and the extra battery and the this and the book and the notepad and the this and the that. And then one day you're like, oh, yeah, okay, well, I'll take a new backpack and you just stick in like what you need, like a laptop and you walk around and you're like, oh, my God, now my back doesn't hurt. And you just didn't realize because the new normal was carrying around all that bullshit that suddenly became your new basis, right? It became your, mm-hmm. it became your new uh, reference point. So for me, having these conversations started off as an experiment, and I say that's the big takeaway, or one of the big takeaways from the last 10 years for me is the value of viewing things like this as short-term experiments. But I didn't expect these conversations to have the huge exhale and relief of tension and the persistence of that feeling, uh, that ended up being the case. It's been, it's been hmm. really remarkable. I've been, uh, very, uh, impressed and relieved with that. So
1: that's awesome. And do you ever do any of this, um, well, I'll give an example. A friend of mine sent me a really nice note uh, a couple months ago that was a handwritten note that he spent the time to to thank me for something. And I just read it. And I was like, wow, that was like a really thoughtful thing to do. Um, you know, and also I know there's also power in even writing notes to people that are no longer here. You know, if someone's passed away and you have something you want to say, um, doing that as well. Have you done any of that? Or has this been mostly just like in-person coffees and phone calls and things like that?
0: It's been mostly voice. Uh, and in part because I've had, I think, fear and hesitation around using voice. So I've wanted to face that. Oh, interesting. To hopefully prove to myself that...
1: Why was there fear around using voice? I I would think there would be fear around writing something down that I would post on the internet if you sent it to me. Well,
0: there's that too, which is is why (laughs) I send you fewer love letters than I used to. Right, right. But uh, the writing... I find is a viable option. It allows a certain degree of predictability. You can hone your message and it can be asynchronous, right? You don't have to respond in real time. Right. And I think that with saying what needs to be said, uh, in many of these cases, I wanted to see and feel the responses Hmm. From these people, whether I was thanking them and expressing gratitude or perhaps making clear that something that was done or something that wasn't done for me was not okay and that it's had repercussions and that it's something I've suffered through and that I'm not looking for any resolution. I'm not looking for a response, but it's weighed very heavily on me that I've kept this to myself and felt like it was a secret uh, that I alone needed to carry. So it's mm-hmm. it's really, and I make that really explicitly clear too in, in a lot of these conversations, that I'm saying it just because I want to feel free after having said it. There's no expectation of a solution, a resolution, behavioral change, none of that, and that I'm just looking for an opportunity to voice something. Yeah. Uh Yeah. So I've done almost all of it via voice.
1: That's great. Yeah. it sounds like such a freeing thing. Like if you, can, how, how many of those did you have to do? Do you still have more to go through, or is it? Uh, there are. It's.
0: It sounds like Arya Stark's list. Uh, right, exactly. It's. It's not a long list. It's. It's really uh, in certain moments, whether it's like taking a bath or going for a long hike. I will have these moments of clarity where I'm like, Oh yeah, that thing, there was never any resolution. Right. It doesn't have to be a big, it doesn't have to be a big deal. It's also not like, you know, I'm hunting down the guy five years ago who cut me in line at Starbucks to (laughs) send him a confession. I'm not doing that. I'm looking for the, 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 the anchors that I, at some point, uh, never never was able to reel in if that makes sense right it's like mm-hmm. there was something that was never completed there was a sense of no resolution and by resolution, just to make it super clear, I don't mean solution I mean closing the loop mm-hmm. right and like from an yeah. emotional standpoint,
1: so yeah, I think we could all think of one or two of those that we all have like i I have one uh, top of my mind where I'm like, huh, I should go back and, yeah. and close that loop. You yeah, know It's
0: like, you know, did, did you do something to uh, also apologies? I've also uh, issued, issued apologies and given apologies to folks. So it could be apologizing for something you did that at the time you felt you were in the right and doing and looking back, you're yeah. like, that was stupid. Even, even perhaps you were in the right, but the tone and the delivery you used was really aggressive or, mm-hmm unnecessarily heavy-handed. It's like, okay, then that's that's a closed loop uh, or a loop that you sh- that you could benefit from closing, right? And uh it's it's been a it's been an an exercise for me and uh a very valuable exercise. I'm not saying it it yeah. applies to everyone, but for me Jerry's questions have been really important because they it, for me they tie together. And let me explain. So Let's take what am I not saying that needs to be said or that should be said. And then you have number 1 on my list, you know, how am I complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? Well, yeah. if by not speaking truth in some fashion I have developed resentment towards someone, right? Whose fault is that? One could argue that it's my fault because I kept that inside. In which case, I'm complicit in creating this sort of emotional terrain that breeds resentment. Like, I am complicit in creating those conditions. So,
1: And oftentimes, sometimes those are in your own head. Like, you've made up this story of why this person is this way. And then you have the conversation, you're like, oh, I'm actually the asshole. I I misunderstood where they were coming from, you know? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And... Uh, I will say also that in almost every instance, whatever I expected in these conversations to happen, whatever I thought the most likely response was, was not the response. Hmm. And that has been fascinating, right? I'm like, well, that person is this type of person. When I say X, they are likely to respond with A, B, or C. And when you use very thoughtful, delicate language like the story I've created in my own head is suddenly people you think you know really well can surprise you. And, uh, that has opened up a whole new level of depth in many relationships in my life, having these conversations. That's been the icebreaker that's been months or years overdue. It's been, it's been uh, really, really quite profound, uh, I'm going to name a couple of other things real quick that were realizations I had when looking back over the next 10 years and the next 10 years, Wow, well, time traveling, back to the future, the last 10 years, because I have four books, right? For Our Body, For Our Chef, Tools of Titans, Tribe of Mentors, then got the TV and got all these different projects. A couple of things we're getting out of the maybe hyper-emotional stuff, happy to go back, but For Our Chef, since that was an experiment in distribution where... Amazon Publishing was boycotted by everyone, Barnes & Noble, Indies, big box retailers. Uh, And this was reiterated for me with some of my television experiences, is you need to really understand or ideally control distribution. And uh, the only way that you're going to do that very often is by uh, financing and owning whatever you produce. Yeah, full I was st- just going to say that. Full stop. That's it. Like, if you are not paying for it, you are not going to have. If you are a persnickety perfectionist like me, the degree of control that you will want, particularly when it comes to choosing distribution, uh, because I've I've had these these projects that have ended up being things I'm extremely proud of, but they're locked in a vault somewhere. From a from a distribution standpoint, and that's been very very painful. So I've had to learn that lesson over the last ten years, multiple times. And uh, also, this seems so childish. Uh, it's embarrassing to admit, but <laughs> you're going to laugh. Get everything in writing. Uh, if <laughs> if someone tells you via email or this or that, yes, we're planning on this type of ABCD and E. It needs to be in the contract, and yeah. and one thing that I really liked is a frame for agreements, which only came up recently with Gary Keller, who's a huge real estate magnate, innovated a lot in that space. Based here in Austin, he said you should you should view every agreement as a disagreement because it's most important function is to tell you what, happ- what happens and what the options are if there's a disagreement, right? Right. Uh, so that's been something I've learned repeatedly. And then the other question that I still pay a lot of attention to that led me from four-hour Chef to years later, because I took a long break for me at least from books to Tools of Titans was, what might this look like if it were easy? That's become a really important go-to question for me. Uh, Because I I think that I pride myself on being able to handle complexity. And sometimes that results in me coming up with uh, somewhat ridiculously, unnecessarily complex solutions to things. Where the easiest solution, like rather than spending the next year figuring out the perfect wordsmithing so that I can manually reply to everybody who asks me about books and doing this, and promoting on the newsletter, and doing the podcast, da-da. Maybe I just do a blog post that's 200 words long that says, I am not reading any new books published in 2020, in 2020. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Like, that is how I got to that, was by asking this question. So those are a few things that have come up for me. Uh, I, I'm curious, one, one question I
1: had about your, kind of, this new decade going forward. Um, you know, when, in looking at your career, arc like over time and knowing you since the four-hour body and seeing the focus and emphasis on biohacking and and wellness and health and nutrition and cooking and then moving a little bit more into you know mentors and and interviewing other folks and then your experience with psychedelics and it seems like the last like you know three to five years has been really focused on um emotional well being and improvement there going where do you when do you eventually or are you still involved in the kind of biohacking stuff and do you see that like what's what's the next decade look like for tim you know before you know, you read your books and it's about like optimizing testosterone and like, you know, certain things in there that like, you know, masturbating with your offhand or whatever it was that you get like the, the you know what I'm talking about, the, these little hacks to get like testosterone boost. Yeah.
0: What yeah, that, your, that was actually your ebook on masturbating on the offhand. <laughs> that was a great experiment. Little side no, hustle. But the,
1: you, you had stuff like that in there, but I uh, maybe I got the wording wrong, but you know what I'm talking about. And, I do. I'm just curious, like what what um, you know, what do the next ten years look like for you on that front? Is that something where you've kind of said, screw it, I take like vitamin C now, and
0: that's <laughs> it? Or you like know. what do you what are you doing there? Yeah, on the body hacking front, I've I've dramatically simplified for uh the host of reasons. Number one is the 4-Hour body at its time, I think, was it was just given the reception and the success of the book. It was a it was a bit of a, a category killer, right? It, it was a very different book, but uh, there are many people who picked up that torch and ran with it. Who do all sorts of crazy experiments, uh, things that I would not necessarily do. So I feel like there is a there's a wealth of self experiment, self experimentation, and and many different folks who are. Continuing to biohack, uh, I have continued to do experiments. Uh, what does
1: your regimen look like today? I'm just curious. Like, what do you wake up and take? Just on the supplement on supplements side. Supplements.
0: I take very, very few supplements. Uh, I take uh, right now. The basics are magnesium. Uh, (laughs) You're getting old, man, for sleep. Yeah, well, Magteen specifically, so Magnesium L3 and 8, uh, which is recommended by our, our friend earlier, Peter Tia, And otherwise, I've really tried to minimize... Supplements. And that's not because I think they are bad. I think it's like saying drugs. There is a very wide spectrum of drugs. And generally speaking, the greater the effect, the greater the side effects. And you know, if you don't know what the side effects are and it has a very high amplitude effect, then you're just the sucker at the poker table who doesn't realize he's the sucker because there are very rarely free lunches in. Uh, Biochemical enhancement, usually, dude.
1: Yeah, I'm a, I'm blown away by that because as someone that's been in your house and seen your medicine closet, yeah. or c- cabinet back in the day. Oh yeah, you had I had a pharmacy, hundreds of bottles, had you had a whole pharmacy. Had a pharmacy, like you could you could have sold out of there. I would purchase <laughs> some. Like you had you had everything. Timmy's bodega. <laughs> that's right. I, yeah.
0: So I and I and there's still a time and a place for that, right? So if I were optimizing for a particular type of competition, and really really focusing on, say, endurance development at altitude or something like that, then I would have a particular regimen. I do supplement with protein at this point. Uh, I mean, they're sponsors of the podcast, but I vet everything. I mean, I've turned down millions of dollars worth of sponsorships from supplement companies, but Ascent Protein made the cut. So I use Ascent Protein. I use Athletic Greens just for for covering my bases, especially if I'm traveling uh, to help mitigate sickness. When, for instance, I did a Grand Canyon trip. Actually, more recently, I did a 250 or 280-mile bike trek, mountain bike trek on the Hayduke Trail from, uh, I guess we started in, I want to say Grand Junction... Might be getting that roughly off, ending in Moab. Uh, I took two days off to ride in the service truck because I was so destroyed. But the point being, where we were staying at the front end and the back end, this is basic airport hotel food. Right? And I will use supplementation more as it's intended to supplement when my whole food options are suboptimal. Right, but I do think supplements can become a crutch for people who are not paying sufficient attention to their whole food, to their sleep, to other parameters. Right, it becomes a a band aid to cover other bad decisions. So, yeah. but from from a biohacking standpoint, I'm still extremely interested in it. What I'm, but I've shifted my focus a bit. So, if you look at say four hour body, right, we're talking about. Hormones, right? Testosterone and so on, growth hormone. And there are chapters on doing all sorts of wacky things with different hormones. And vertical leap, maximal speed, uh, relative, uh, relative strength improvement with deadlift. All this craziness, right? And then you have 4-Hour Chef, which was very much cognitively focused and got into different smart drugs and using vasopressin to enhance short-term memory and all this, all this crazy shit. Then, if you look at the last, let's just call it five to six years for me, the fact of the matter is, I'm still very interested in biohacking, but it, it starts to get into some very, very fascinating alien terrain that Western medicine uh, and really no no single medical system or scientific system explains very well, and that is use of compounds. As one example, classical psychedelics, like mescaline, psilocybin, and so on, but not limited to those. You could also include in that group MDMA for PTSD. Compounds that seem to exert an effect with, with rapid onset, And extremely long duration of effects, meaning in the cessation of smoking studies that have been done, so nicotine addiction studies have been done at Hopkins, you have people who six, I want to say six or 12 months later, 80% of the subjects are still non-smokers. After two or three sessions with psilocybin combined with psychotherapy, but nonetheless, you're looking at three sessions, each of which lasts, let's call it four to eight hours. And the half-life of these drugs is very well known. Nonetheless, these these paradigm, and I do rarely use this word, but sort of paradigm-shifting mental reorganization and the sort of reformatting Of the belief systems and stories these people use to govern their realities have changed so fundamentally that their behaviors remain changed, even in the face of extremely addictive compounds like nicotine six or 12 months later. So, one could argue that I'm still very much in the biohacking game. I'm just going from the knowns, right? If we look at testosterone, like testosterone, whether that's naturally produced or the injectables, testosterone cypionate, or uh, any type of uh, means of administration or HCG or whatever, these things are all very well understood, right? Aspirin, very well understood. Uh, Some of the smart drugs, like hydrogen, very well understood. And uh, at least very well studied. So I'm moving from these knowns into this, area of unknowns with psychedelics where we could, unlike the use of testosterone, at least at this point with the technology we have access to, fMRI and otherwise, uh, much tighter study design now than say in the fifties, we are in a position to, to discover fundamentally, new ways of looking at the mind and consciousness and therefore reality as we experience it. And that, to me, is the money shot, right? Everything yeah, else... but that seems e- like a slight
1: yeah. refocus, though, right? Because that's more of a focus on brain and mental health and rewiring that's done there versus, say, longevity.
0: Uh, well, I mean, yes and no, right? So there's, there's longevity. I do think that psychedelics actually could offer plausible mechanisms of action for extending cognitive function. Uh, That's a whole separate conversation, but I have Alzheimer's and Parkinson's on both sides of my family. So my initial interest as an undergrad in neuroscience was purely self-defense. I wanted to learn as much as possible to help my parents, my family, and yours truly to at the very least, delay the onset of...
1: Are you a yeah.
0: 3-4? Yeah. Oh, you are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you have the genetic
1: marker that gets you, what, you're like four or five times more likely to get Alzheimer's yeah. than the average person?
0: Yeah. So if we're looking at it from a software perspective, right, uh, I'm coded to have a much higher predisposition to certain types of neurodegenerative disease. Uh, and that, it's it's that is the hand I've been dealt. So the question is, how will I play that hand? And looking at, uh, say, Hopkins, where all of this is led, especially as a nascent, what I would consider still a very nascent field, the ability to put in relatively small amounts of money, although, I mean, I've committed a lot for me, uh, about $3 million or $4 million now to scientific research related to uh, psychedelics, and I should say that psychedelics are tools in the toolkit. But really, what I'm looking at is novel treatments, potential novel treatments of what are considered intractable psychiatric conditions. Right? Mm-hmm. Anorexia, highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. Uh, hmm. Miserable track record in terms of effective treatments. Uh, treatment-resistant depression, end of life anxiety, say due to a terminal cancer diagnosis. Nicotine addiction, uh, so opioids, opioids, like opioids. All, all, yeah. Uh, so at Hopkins, there are a number of studies that will be getting underway at the first center for dedicated center for psychedelic and consciousness research in the U.S., which is, is going to be based there. Looking at Alzheimer's, looking at mm-hmm. opioid use disorder, which I mean is opioid addiction, effectively. And uh, so my my shift has been a shift, but I would argue that. And this is going to be a fortune cookie slash cliche that I'll use, but it's not about how many years I can put into my life, but also about how much life I can put into my years. So I think it's important mm-hmm. and it, for anyone who's seen my TED Talk on fear setting or read my post on uh, titled Some Practical Thoughts on Suicide. I almost offed myself in college. And there are many people who live a long time but are trapped in these endless loops of self-recriminating thoughts. They're trapped in the past in depression. They're trapped in the future in anxiety. And I would argue that that is not living, at least not as I would like to experience it. That is surviving, right? That is being a physical form that is not dead, but that is not the same as thriving. So if we look at the staggering growth of, say, opioid use in the U.S., uh, particularly synthetic opioids. If we look at the veteran suicide rates, many of which are comorbid with opioid uh, use disorder, but if you look at, say, the, the number that I've heard, it may or may not be statistically defensible, but something along the lines of 23 veterans per day committing suicide. If you look at the rates of depression and substance abuse among teenagers, say, there's, there, to my mind, are clearly societal factors at play that are the perfect soil for producing these types of coping mechanisms. And uh, so, so for me, yes, the biohacking has shifted, but the same toolkit that I applied to trying to optimize sex drive or testosterone or whatever it might be, yeah, the same literature review and research that I had to do there has been much improved and refined over the last five years in particular to look at uh, psycho-emotional health. And I am really, really, really optimistic. And that's coming from someone who thought he had problems that were sort of personalized and permanent, unfixable, let's put a bullet in the head instead, bad which yeah. is something many people feel. And I, I am now, at this point, extremely optimistic about some of these new novel treatment procedures. Ketamine is very interesting, has its own challenges. Uh, both psilocybin and MDMA have been granted breakthrough therapy designation by the FDA to expedite the, the review process. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but have seen such a difference in my own life uh and you've you've known me for a long time, man. I mean, you've known me since two thousand and seven. Yeah. I feel like fundamentally a different person today than I did six or seven years ago,
1: yeah, and I mean, I can definitely see it in you, yeah I can tell a difference for sure, yeah, just the way that you carry yourself, even when you came over to our house like a couple months ago, Dario was like, Tim just like he's just carries himself differently, you're just like a lot more relaxed at you ease. Know? at
0: ease at ease, yeah and that's why I actually had trouble preparing for this conversation because I was looking at 2020, I was like, man, well, I guess people are going to expect me to have like a million resolutions, but I don't. And I, I have a handful of things, but what I've realized is that for me at least, like, peace is not found through understanding, right? Peace is not found through more striving, Peace is not found through Mm. more achieving. Peace is found through greater acceptance. That's what I've found for myself. And what Mm -hmm. does that mean? It doesn't mean accepting shitty things and allowing bad behavior and awful atrocities or trends to continue. It just means taking time to recognize that in most circumstances, you are okay, things are okay, and allowing yourself to kind of bask in that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally uh, makes uh, sense, dude. I get it. You know, and I I feel like you, have also, especially in the last, I want to say two years, and I don't know, two or three years, how much of that is kids, how much of it is going through programs, uh, uh, like you did. Is it Michael Singer? Um, yeah. The the un, what the Untethered Soul, but the, yeah,
1: he has one on surrender. On, that's phenomenal. On surrender,
0: but I've noticed that you still get a lot done, right? You're still very engaged with creative projects, but you seem to me, I was very impressed with this and I mentioned it to my girlfriend last time we were at your place. I said, it's really nice to wake up, go upstairs and see Kevin just sitting with his kids, drinking a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, completely unrushed.
1: Yeah. Right? It's funny, that that's on my list of, uh, of things that I had to talk about today. I wrote down, not everything has to be done today. Patience. Yeah. And I think that when you think of things having to be done today, and everything has to be done today, then you're anticipating the feeling of completion. And when you're anticipating that, it's not you're not enjoying what's happening right now. Yeah. Because you're thinking like, I'll feel so much better when my to do list is done. I'll feel so much better when I complete this project. Yeah. And the thing that I, I've realized over the last couple of years, I, more than anything, has been that. I have over the last you know ten years, or even you know, in founding Dig in two thousand four and, and staying with that for seven years, um, I never enjoyed it. Yeah, I never was able to because it was just like, oh, I got to run, I got to do this, I have to make this, I have to launch this, I have to grow faster, I have to do all this, and I I look back and I'm like, wow, there was no joy. I mean, there was little wins, and of course, certain things brought me joy, but it was so rushed that I was never here. I but my head, my brain was always focused on tomorrow yeah and so you know just having that patience and just being able to exhale and realize that dude we're gonna miss all of life if we don't enjoy the day-to-day dance of it all you know and that that's that's what I strive to do I don't always do that but that's that's been my uh, hopefully that, is something that I will focus on over the next, you know, five to ten years. Is just really taking it all in yeah. and smiling, you know, and spending. And I think kids helps with that. And that's why I've been pushing
0: you to have kids. Yeah, I know. You and I have been trying and trying. It doesn't doesn't seem to be working. It's, it's just not <laughs> working. Damn it. Uh, the the uh, the focus on not rushing is one I think is very important, at least for me, and that you know, for me luxury in a way more than anything else is the feeling of being unrushed right and I think that that as a goal of sorts as a litmus test is has many many ripple effects that are beneficial which come out of that Uh, and there's a book I'm, I'm uh reading right now. I'm not done with it yet, but called Already Free, which I suspect is probably quite similar to some of Michael Singer's work. I, that just came out this year, right? Uh, I don't know the date. It was recommended to me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, because you were not supposed oh, to read yes, anything from this year. It did not come out this year. <laughs> it, uh, it was recommended What's to What's it me called again? I'm going to look it up. Already Free. And okay. it, it combines Western psychotherapy with Buddhist practice and concepts from Buddhism, which, if you had told me 10 years ago what I just said, I would have vomited a little bit into my mouth and said, yeah, I've been to those bookstores too, with all the crystals and the dream catchers. And there are thousands of those books, and I just don't have time to sort through what is bullshit and what might have validity. But this book was recommended to me by a top tier therapist who has, she would never say this, but she's saved the lives of hundreds or maybe thousands of people. She's, She's incredibly adept. And she recommended this book to me. Uh, because she has found it compelling. And I'm going to butcher it, but do you, do you have the name of the author up in front? By yeah, chance?
1: it's Bruce Ma Lumpft. Oh, wow. Is that who you're talking
0: about? It <laughs> could be. <laughs> if you just search for Bruce Tift, but already free is is the title of the book. And I, I've found this book to be very actionable and very compelling. And one of the, apologize to the author if I'm misremembering this, but one of the... the the practices or steps that he will often take with clients is, is the fo- something along the lines of the following. If they complain that, say, their, their boss never recognizes them, therefore they have struggles with self-worth and this, 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 and this. And that is a complaint that they have, something they'd like to fix that comes up continually in therapy is he will try to get to them to the point where they are willing to accept that they could have that feeling for the rest of their lives unresolved and will guide them through thought exercises and hypothetical scenarios so they get to the point where they're willing to accept that is a possibility. They will never get rid of that. And what often seems to happen and i've noticed this for myself is that they're then able to let out this big exhale because it's no longer mandatory that they push this boulder up a hill and fix the problem mm-hmm. and all of a sudden their experience changes mhm and that at that point they become to th- they become able to think more clearly and respond less reactively because they've accepted that if that were to happen, they're going to survive, there will still be moments of joy, they can still build other valuable relationships, and it just reframes the whole thing. So, I have found that to also, and it it is a close cousin to a lot of the fear setting, but I think that that type of reframe can be very, very powerful. Mm. And for me, a lot of it comes back to good questions, right? Which is why I collect questions, why I enjoy asking questions, why I enjoy borrowing questions from, uh, from other people. Uh, and uh, I would say also looking back at the last 10 years, you know, for my entire life, I viewed self-love, I think, as self-indulgent, in the sense that I felt it would be narcissistic and selfish and unproductive to feel or embrace or cultivate self-love in any way. And that in fact, the way to drive myself was to constantly pick apart everything I was or did in a very brutal fashion in terms of internal monologue. And... Uh, I think that that is part of what drove me so close to the edge in college is that incessant abusive inner voice. And I got a lot done. You know, I did a lot of things and at the end of the day who the fuck cares? Really, right? Like in 200 years we're all dust. No one's going to remember us. It doesn't matter, right? right. <laughs> so great. I got a better grade on my junior term paper who the fuck cares, right? At the end of the day that voice almost drove me to extinguish myself. So what I've also found is that looking back at the last 10 years, like how you treat yourself affects it it in some way influences how you treat other people. So if you are violent and angry towards yourself, there will be an element of violence and anger towards other people, whether it comes out really obviously or it comes out in the form of like resentment and complaining and passive aggressiveness. It's going to manifest. So spending time with Jack Kornfield has had a a huge impact on me. this was a few years ago when I first met Jack. He's a very famous meditation teacher, wonderful human being, uh, walks the walk, uh, there are a lot of posers in the mindfulness meditation world. Uh, a lot of people who really are of the do what I say, not what I do school. If you look under the hood, Jack is so adept and has such an incredible toolkit. Also, as a clinical psychologist for helping veterans, adolescents who are self harming and cutting, he's very skilled. And we had a, we had a conversation at one point, and um, he said something that stuck with me. And I'm going to paraphrase it because the exact words are important, but the gist is, and that is, if your compassion doesn't extend to yourself, it's incomplete. And that seems so obvious, right? But I do think that a lot of people who pride themselves on being achievers spend the vast majority of their time whipping themselves.
1: And what do you think? I mean, I think everyone has that internal dialogue and some days it can be more intense than others in terms of being critical. Um, or for me, it's, it's not so much critical on myself as it is just, um, ruminating on certain thoughts and like over and over again, I've had a lot of that. Um, how did you break out of that? Like what was, and is it something that you still struggle with today? Like if, if someone's listening to this, and they're like, oh my God, that describes me to the T. Like I have all these, I'm, I'm constantly so harsh on myself. What are the steps that someone would take?
0: Well, some are easier to recommend than others. Uh, I've done a lot of really wild stuff uh, and some very, very aggressive stuff. Um, and it's not to say that all tools will, will work for all people. But I do think... That there are certain books that have had a large impact on me that have helped other people. And in fact, now that I think about it, I believe that one of them, Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock, was recommended to me by Daria. Which, which mm. surprised the hell out of me because Daria is very sharp, scientifically minded, very skeptical and at least back in the day, my experience with Daria was that anything remotely woo woo or hand wavy, she was just like, talk to the hand, not interested, right? So when yeah. she recommended this book, very generic title, and the subtitle I can't remember at the moment, but Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock, and I thought, oh my God, like, has Daria had a, had a frontal lobotomy? Like, what happened? I don't know how yeah, this book would, hasn't. would make yeah. it through her filter. And it was incredibly helpful so radical acceptance self acceptance uh making peace with parts of us aspects of ourselves emotions we have grown to believe are negative or unwanted you know reconciling reintegrating yourself in a way mm mm-hmm. is is a worthy goal. And I, I think I've largely succeeded. I still have my moments where I beat myself up, but it is less than 5% of what it was five or six years ago. Uh, I feel like this could be a good book for you, honestly. Oh, it, I, I've already been... I have a Scrivener file with hundreds of thousands of words already put together. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not in book form, but I, this 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 is the book that I want to work on Uh And this is the book I talked about in my episode with uh, Greg McEwen as the thing that I I feel I need to do. And for 2020, and I started this already at the end of 2019, but I'm getting back to writing regularly on the blog for that reason. It's sharpening the saw so that when I really sit down to put together prose, I want it to be as good as possible. And Mm -hmm. uh, this, this is definitely... This is definitely uh, a calling. I feel called to do this, in part because I've seen the effects, uh, not just through using books, but certainly practices. I think that Mm -hmm. uh, Byron Katie's The Work can be very helpful. It can be also a little confusing, but Byron Katie's The Work, as a means of testing assumptions and stories that you tell yourself, Kind of stress testing them, and uh, as an exercise, being forced to come up with evidence or examples that counter your statement, like your belief, is really can be very eye opening, especially when done in a group context. Then you have uh, certainly meditation, with without a doubt, uh, especially in my case when co- combined with either entirely cutting out caffeine or dramatically cutting out caffeine Mhm th- that is that is non trivial for me
1: That's that's tough to do I, I did that uh, about a month and a half ago I, I wanted to go 1 month without caffeine and I I was weaning myself off a little too aggressively Yeah and I started getting those horrible caffeine headaches yeah, right here. But but I was able to do it and then I I actually just switched to decaf coffee which has a tiny trace amount of caffeine, yeah. but uh, that stuff is horrible. There's no good decaf coffee out there. Yeah. If somebody out there is listening and knows of some, please let me know somehow. Just tweet
0: at me. I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, I tend to use my time in nature or time fasting, which I'll often do in nature. But my t- if I'm spending a lot of time in nature, let's just take this last Utah trip as an example unlike a day like today where I am mostly sitting inside. If I'm mostly sitting inside, I have an oral fixation and I'll just drink iced tea and coffee all day because it's sitting in front of me and I'm looking for a fidget, just like I fidget with my pen and flick my pen around. It's a fidget. Whereas if I'm in Utah and I want to get to fresh powder and I'm waking up early, I'll have a cup of coffee in the morning, but then I'm on the slopes or outside for at least a few hours when I'm consuming nothing but water. And mm. what I realize after a few days of that is that I feel like I've been meditating twice a day for a month. But And perhaps being outside and skiing and so on is a form of meditation in and of itself. But suffice to say, often I've thought to myself, you can either meditate once or twice a day for two weeks, Or just cut your caffeine consumption down to one cup of coffee a day, and the results are very often the same. If you (laughs) if you combine them, all the better. But I've never heard of anyone obtaining enlightenment via
1: less caffeine. You know, you might be the first. There's always a first. There's always a first.
0: I'm happy to be the first non-caffeinated monkey shot into space on the quest to enlightenment through abstinence. But uh, and I I don't like. Making a recommendation with the following, but it would be the elephant in the room if I left it out. Psychedelics. Responsible, supervised, facilitated sessions with psychedelics have provided a reset slash reformatting that is very difficult to achieve via other means. I don't think it's impossible, but it's very challenging. And... I simply have no way, I have theories, but no way to explain quite how profound and lasting the changes can be or how they're produced. It's still very poorly understood. What we do know is that in some cases, say with psilocybin, the toxicity is exceptionally low. I mean, it is far less than, say, acetaminophen, Tylenol, and many other things. So, Uh, I do not take this stuff every afternoon. It's not a, I I try not to be a hammer looking for a nail. I do not think these drugs are panaceas. I do think there are significant risks, possible risks, for those uh, who, say, have a family history of schizophrenia. And uh, you can make very poor decisions. You can make dangerous decisions while under the influence, which... uh, underscores the importance of uh, facilitated, supervised sessions. Uh, but these compounds have been integral to providing enough slack in the system and different perspectives from which I can look at myself as an observer. Right? It's, uh, it can be very difficult to see your own stories. Right? Because like your entire reality, like what we look at, what we hear, is is not the only reality. Right? It's like we're our brains are interpolating and filling in a lot of gaps as we use generic concepts and stories to interpret and make sense of everything around us. So and I'm not the first person to come up with this metaphor, but it's it's like trying to look at the lens of your own eye as you're looking through the lens. You just can't do it. But uh, psychedelics in proper setting with supervision can, in some instances, provide you the ability to sort of rotate out or above and really do a radical self-assessment that shows you where your blind spots are. And it Mm -hmm. shows you where your stories and your software are out of date. Uh, but I do not recommend people break the law. Uh, if we want to talk about side effects, the legal side effects can be significant. I mean, you can you can go to jail for a long time if you uh, possess or distribute these compounds. They are currently Schedule 1, and uh, this is why I'm dedicating. I've dedicated more capital and energy to psychedelic research than anything else in the last few years. And it is, I want to say at least, uh, it is close to or more than all of the capital I've invested in startups over whatever it was a almost 10 year period.
1: So if, if this, when this becomes a legal form of therapy, are we going to see Tim Ferriss branded psychedelic pop up
0: shops uh, around the country? <laughs> Tim Ferriss psychedelic treatment mall kiosks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right next to it. Buy it directly from yeah. Five Bullet Friday. Yeah, right next to Express Spa in the airport. <laughs> right. Why travel sober when you could? Uh,
1: Would you ever be involved in anything like that, though? Like, I, I mean, all, all kidding aside, or yeah, is that I'd, you're I'd, just more interested I'd, on the research side?
0: It's not just a question of interest. It's a question of maintaining a neutrality so I can be more effective, right? I don't, mm. I don't want people to question my motives, which is the same reason, by the way, I, I did not invest in or create any supplement companies before for our body. I could mm. have made tens of millions of dollars doing that. Easily, And I knew that because, as you know, I mean, I used to own sports nutrition companies. So I know how those businesses work. I could build one very easily. I have access to all the right people. And I didn't do it because I didn't want people to question my motives. I wanted to be as objective as possible and for people to view me as objective or as objective as possible. And in the world of psychedelics, I don't want to place any bets in a for profit capacity that would lead me to even subconsciously exert bias in who I help or what I help, yeah and even if I could make a for profit bet that would not affect my objectivity, it would affect the how others perceive me in the field, and that would inhibit my ability to move the needle in. A number of different ways, and last, I will say, and this is this is this is uh, also vocabulary these are phrases that you know Tim of fifteen years ago would just be disgusted by, but he didn't know didn't know what he didn't know. this is a very uh, sacred space this is this is very uh, in some ways very sacred work it's it's incredible when you witness what can transpire for someone in a 4 to 6 hour session and how completely their conception of themselves and relationships problems addictions can change you feel like you're witnessing something very special, and you are witnessing something very special, yeah. something very unusual that many people hope their whole lives for and never get. And to that extent, you and I have been very fortunate, uh, and we've had all sorts of advantages. We've also had you know, certain disadvantages, and we've made uh, lucky bets, and we're in a position where we don't have to make... Compromises. We don't have to make compromises to generate income, right? Like we're not worried about how to pay the rent next month. And for that reason, I like having this entire field to be for me a a capital off limits, a money off limits area in my life. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like it's just a it's just a a complication that I don't want and don't need. And uh, for that reason, I would be very surprised. I'd be very surprised if there was any Tim (laughs) Ferriss-branded airport psychedelic kiosk. Uh, there, There may be outfits that I assist in some way, but I can't imagine that I would ever tie financial incentives or financial return to anything that I do in this space, I would be disappointed in myself unless something very, very significant changes. And I just can't imagine quite what that would be. Yeah. yeah. And let's say I did something, who knows, let's just say some gigantic pharma company said, will you advise us on blah, 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 blah. And as long as I could be convinced, and this this would be a long shot, but let's just say I was able, I and my advisors were convinced that they weren't just doing this to sort of whitewash their sins and provide a human uh, riot shield (laughs) for whatever they were going to do. And they wanted advice of some type and they were offering advisory compensation. All of the funds would have to go to funding other types of research or to uh, some other recipient besides myself right perhaps it goes into a foundation and then gets funneled directly into some related cause that i care deeply about
1: yeah it'd be interesting to see how you could think through that a little bit further to kind of figure out if there is an opportunity there that you could just roll it into a complete nonprofit so yep. that you could participate in some of the upside because obviously there are going to be when this stuff does all finally come around and it is um you know stamped with the Whatever it may be, FDA or whoever has to stamp th- all the way through to actually launching something as a as a therapeutic product for the consumer, there'll be b- multi billion dollar businesses built on the back of this in some capacity,
0: right? There could be. So, there, there definitely could be. I think it's. I think it's going to be a lot trickier than folks expect, and I hope that the current means of administration, meaning let's just call it two or three sessions of two or three active sessions. There may be placebo sessions, but let's just call it two or three active sessions with long-term persistent effects. I hope that that does not get corrupted and replaced with some type of analog that is or close cousin that is then turned into a maintenance tool. In other words, I hope that the business priorities of drug developers do not affect the beautiful elegance of how these tools can be used in such a way that they, they get converted into something that needs to be used three times a week just to get by. And right. I, I I absolutely expect there will be people who attempt to do that. Uh, but I would not want to, I certainly don't want to encourage that. Uh, but there could be a lot of money made and, and there there are possibilities uh
1: yeah my only point was that i would l- rather see those funds flow into someone's nonprofit like your own yeah. that would then go right back into research than then have it go to someone else but you know cuz i i, I wouldn't trust you with that those those funds to do the right thing
0: yeah yeah i i and there are things i want to do you know one idea that i had for 2020 that i thought could be fun uh which is not the same as a for profit business that um uh, then provides upside that could be funneled into a non which is entirely possible. I mean, that's what I'm doing with my foundation right now. But uh, I've been I've been thinking about doing an, a high-end art auction. And I know people have done this in the past. I believe that... Uh, I want to say Leonardo DiCaprio has done a very good job of this. don't know, Leo, personally. But the concept would be getting pieces donated. And I don't know if they... It's unlikely to me that a Sotheby's or a a Christie's or someone would would do this. They might, but to have incredible pieces of artwork donated by extremely famous artists uh, and to take the proceeds and donate them to... Psychedelic research or scientific Oh, dude,
1: this, you could have this happen in two seconds. I know a ton of the auction folks through my time at Hodinkee. Okay, great. So if you, if you want to talk to any of the Christie's or Sotheby's or Phillips folks, like, yeah. I mean, this is, this happens already. Like, for example, there's a, an auction each year that's called Only Watch, and every one of the high end watch manufacturers will create a special one off limited edition watch, or not limited edition, but just one off. And they raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars for, um, uh, I can't remember it's muscular dystrophy or what, what the actual cause is, but it's a it's a wonderful cause, and it it happens every year. Uh, this could be that for psychedelics. Yeah,
0: so that excite that excites me, right? Because you have to because do that. it could be because it could be paintings, but it could also be watches. It could be anything. And what's so nice about that is people are bidding. Uh, there are certainly tax advantages for people who are buying these items. I would imagine, maybe maybe not, but nonetheless, I mean, they're going to a good cause. They are paying for one-of-a-kind, or at the very least, uh, highly sought-after, scarce items that have value, sustained value, right? So you're not just kind of begging for money with your hat out. And what's so incredible about the psychedelic research space right now is that for, for 10 or $20 million, I mean, you can potentially bend the arc of history, it's so nascent and so much can be done with so little that what would be considered a drop in the bucket for cancer research or any number of other conditions could actually lead to fundamental breakthroughs in an entirely new field. And not just breakthroughs as it relates to a specific compound, but breakthroughs in how we begin to understand how the mind and the brain work, right? Where is where is the seat of consciousness? Does such a thing anatomically exist? I mean, there are some, these are real questions that people are investigating. And I, I don't think we fully appreciate the implications of figuring some of that out. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's incredible. Oh, that's so cool. And there's so many artists, as you know, who suffer from Absolutely, depression from anxiety. That's why it's a no-brainer.
1: It's this is yeah. like a perfect match. Like you yeah. have people that su- suffer with something like that. I mean, where's you? You must know Banksy at this point, right?
0: I don't. I would love to. If you have a connection, I want to. I would love to connect with Banksy for a million reasons. But I do not yet know Banksy. I did go to his hotel, yeah, <laughs> in the Middle East, which was amazing and uh, pretty incredible. But I've 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 studied him. I know of him. I'm very familiar with his work, but don't know him.
1: I feel like if we can get him to commit a piece. Yeah. That's a good place to start. That
0: would be a great place to start. I mean and and there <laughs> that would be a great place to start. There are there are a number of artists I find absolutely incredible who uh you know were they willing to participate would uh they would act as the lead domino that tips over everything else, right? Because yeah. you you don't need you really just need that first tenant right? The first person who says, right. I believe in this. Uh, and, you know, I haven't reached out to anyone at this point, but you know, one of my favorite artists in the world is David Hockney. He's so, so incredible. You should check him out. Uh, and uh, there's there's a wonderful documentary about him called, I want to say, Learning How to See or The Art of Seeing that you should check out. And uh, such a just seems like such a beautiful human being, very well spoken, very humble, and you know, you it should be doable, right? This does not I, I, strike I, me as insane. Let's
1: talk offline because right. I, I have some people you should talk to. I think we can make this happen. That sounds really cool. All right,
0: amazing, amazing. That's so exciting. The other thing that uh, this is this is jumping around topic wise, but the other thing I want to start doing this year is something that I spoke with uh, Nick Thompson ages ago about, and that is. Hiring top tier writers at, say, I think the, I think the, uh, I think the rate he suggested was maybe two dollars a word or something like that. But really paying top dollar uh, for good long form journalists to write pieces on my blog, like to 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 investigate topics that would otherwise not get investigated. Right? I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was having a long conversation with one of my closest friends about a week ago, about how the preceding two days felt like two or three weeks. A lot of things had happened. We've, we'd we moved locations a lot. We were spending a lot of time in backcountry doing really strong um, uh, physical exertion. And we both noticed that the last, the preceding two days seemed, it was like, oh my God, that happened two days ago. It seems like three weeks ago. And yet there are also weeks that go by Where you're like, what the fuck did I do this week? Like, I know I was sitting around doing stuff, but like, it just went by like that. Yeah. So, investigating, let's just say, as one example, like, investigating the expansion of time, right? How can, what are the, what, what does the science say? What do,
1: uh, what, if you want someone to pitch in on that, I, I will, I'll throw some cash towards that article too. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by this. Yeah, it's, I would love love to go in deep on that right? one. And it's
0: like, so let's get someone who puts out just stellar, stellar long form pieces that they can take some time on, right? Because I don't need this tomorrow. I'd love to have it tomorrow, but if it takes two months, if it takes three months, like so be it. I care more about the quality, but to have like. Let's just say to have five of those at any given time in motion i, I it just seems like a, an excellent use of money and yeah uh, or there are certain people i I would love to have profiles right like people who are doing incredible weird things that are never i don't I don't think would ever make it onto the radar of some of the larger publications i respect but they're just they they already have i would imagine an, an abundance of wonderful ideas and i i have some say a leads and b suggestions that could really help people gain access to folks who otherwise wouldn't be accessible or otherwise would never get covered right i mean it's uh, that kind of thing. It's like, all right, let's do a human interest story. And do you have people in
1: mind right on the writer side that you would use? Cause I, I know we could probably reach out to Evan medium. I'm sure he's got a bunch of great independent writers that you could yeah. hire.
0: Yeah. I, I spoke with Nick about this. I, there are a few writers I've worked with in the past who I have found to be really, really sharp and also very ethical. Uh, Those two don't always go together, as we know, which is a a huge bummer. Uh, That's another thing I've learned in the last 10 years, is like hire for uh, reliability and trustworthiness and attitude first. Uh, Lots of skilled, smart people out there who uh, may not have the best ethical compass, so you have to really guard against that. But uh, there are are a number of writers I've worked with who have... uh, Done fantastic work, and uh, they're they're on the short list. They're kind of the the, the, the first list that I have. But uh, there are so many there are so many great writers out there. Right? There, it should be it should be possible to get someone since I would be the editor, so to speak. Right? And yeah. I have no uh, delusions of thinking I'm David Remnick of the New Yorker or anything. Like, I I do not think that I am. The best editor in the world, but nonetheless, it's my blog, so I have to look at this stuff, and I'm pretty good. Like I think I'm a very fair. Uh, et- I've edited a lot of my friends' books um, because I can't not edit if they give me something to review. But I would be bringing these people in because they are ostensibly, I mean, uh, almost certainly better writers than I am. Uh, so that's really exciting to me, just to just to kick the tires and try it. You know? Yeah, that's awesome, uh, and it's it's also one of those examples of like one decision that removes a lot of decisions It's like let's just time is a non-renewable resource Uh, I'm very confident I can make money back if I need to let me just place some bets and let people run you know and then it's like oh lo and behold like three months later an email comes in got a first draft or got a third draft whatever it might be uh that would be very exciting to me uh Yeah, what else have what else have you uh put on your list of things to remember for 2020, pay attention to or just notes from the last last decade? I've got one, but I'm going to I'm going to hold on to it cuz uh we can talk about it in a little in a little bit. Not that we have to go for 5 hours, but uh, anything else that comes to mind that you'd like to mention?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the the things that um I look back on that I'm I feel that I did quite well over the last 10 years was my track record of investing in the public markets and I think yeah. that yeah, you're very I know good. why. You're very good. I appreciate that. Um, I I've I think I know I have kind of like put my formula down on paper so I I have a sense of of what I how I am able to take big risks without them feeling like big risks and I think that's key for me not to freak out and, and sell things off. So essentially what I've figured out is my mixture of investments. And for me, you know, you've always heard that. Well, I mean, there's that saying that I guess most people think is, is bullshit, which is probably true, which is to hold your age in bonds, right? Like the, the old saying is if you're 40 years old, you should have 40% of your net worth in, in bonds. And I have always liked having some security like that. Um, I think that that is not a wise strategy for young investors because I think they are too heavily weighted in safer investments when they should be taking the most risk up front. But um, now that I am into my 40s, I don't think of it as just bonds. I think of it as what are some safer investments that I can have that 40% in. So that could be you know, higher yield bonds. It could be dividend-paying stocks that are... Blue chip, um, you know, dividend stocks that I that I, I hold in a, a basket or an index. But the thing that that's... exotic th- animal nothing, farms, exactly. <laughs> that, you, know, you know my investment types. But that, there's nothing. That's all you can pick that all this kind of stuff up in any investment book. What I have done that is different is that I've said that 20% of my net worth, whatever that may be, is going to go into ultra risky. Investments, but only ones that kind of soup to nuts. I understand at a very, very deep level. So that means these really risky tech investments for me, and um, that has led to, you know, early investments in Bitcoin, early investments in in Apple. You know, I remember when Apple came out with uh, OS X, the first version. And I was just blown away, and I knew this was such a brilliant new direction for the company. That was in two thousand and one. The stock back then was trading at a dollar sixty or so <laughs> a share, which is just insanity. Um, oh my god! But you know, more more recently, in the last few years, that would be you know the Shopify's and the the uh, Teslas and things like that. But um, you know, also avoiding stuff I didn't understand. I think is like the saying no. Like for example, everyone was jumping on Netflix. You know, five years ago. Maybe even longer. Um, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how this wouldn't become just like the music business, and how it would be the margins would be ultra thin. I had no idea about creating original content, what those costs, what the cost structure for that would be. It was something that a lot of my friends were making fantastic returns on, but something that I ended up not buying, and I, I missed out on that one. But that's fine because I was able to concentrate my bets on things that products not only that I use and enjoy but under understood completely and um, that for me taking that that 20% of my investments and focusing them on things that I believe that could truly have you know 25 to 50, uh, 50x returns over the next couple decades I think has been key in kind of growing my my net worth over time
0: so we're talking about or you're talking about buy decisions right how do you decide What's your framework for deciding when to sell things? If you have one. And it could be any category or all categories, but you're somewhat famous for telling me what you're going what you're going to buy and then not telling me six months later when you sell it all.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean I think that the the thing is has the underlying No, that's true. I think <laughs>
0: And then 18 have, months later I'm like, oh man, tough Tim's like, tough quarter on huh? you're a, like, I sold that a year and a half ago. I'm like, oh you exactly, fucking exactly. bastard.
1: Well well I, I think like have the underlying uh, fundamentals of the business changed, you know? And I think that if the answer is yes, then I consider selling. If the answer is no, but you're seeing a decline due to other market turbulence, then that's actually when I buy more. So if I see a big massive dip and it has nothing to do with the company, but it was just something that came out of Trump's mouth, like I'm going to double down and pick up some more stock on sale. Right? So, um, You know, and then also working with your tax accountant so you know when you could take some gains off the table and tax wise it makes sense for you. But I would say that, um, you know, I I am even more skeptical and scared of stocks like Netflix today because I look at all the other entrants in the market over the that you know are both coming and have recently launched, whether it be Apple TV's streaming services or um, you know the new Disney Plus. Or you know peacock, which is coming out, there's gonna be so much competition for that five to ten dollar a month kind of cable plus plus that uh, it, it's it's a little frightening. but um, you know, so it's that's how I you know when I look at shop, well also I think there's there's a couple things. One, what's the total addressable market of this business? So you know how big is the is the the Tam there and do they have room to grow? So Shopify today, You know, I I can't. I'm not sure where they're at. Fifty-some billion-dollar company. They were around five early on, and and well, actually, dude, Shopify was the one that you're probably killing yourself over.
0: Yeah, I am. I made a terrible, (laughs) terrible, terrible decision. Well, you know that I am. I have a history. Now, I've I have improved, but you were an advisor to them before they went public when they had eight employees. So I was with them from day not day one, but very early. And I panic sold I panic sold, and uh, that was maybe right after lockup expired, so this would be like whatever that is six months after iPO and I just made a terrible, terrible decision and sold a bunch of it uh, I'm curious what
1: was the underlying reason though with the talking about when to sell yeah like the the business was was having great numbers quarter over quarter, like if you looked at all the fundamentals there yeah. look i mean granted they, they're not profitable. But but revenue was increasing. Um, you know, cost of acquiring customers yep. was going down. What was it that that you freaked out about?
0: I don't. I mean, I don't think that freakouts are generally a rational decision. I'm not like, well, if A and if B and therefore C and one two three four five, freak out. You know, it's not like that is yeah. at the end of a long deliberation. Uh, I think that the gain since my cost basis was effectively zero, right? my gain was such that the absolute number of dollars was enough to, at the time, move the needle for me and provide a level of security that I didn't want to risk. It does, yeah. doesn't mean that there were a bunch of risks. I just didn't know. And I, you never know what you don't know.
1: Do you know
0: what I mean, though? I was like, you know,
1: Oh, dude, there's, there's that first wave of, I want to take care of myself, pay off my bills, pay off my house. This is like something that's going to secure my future yep. that you would just be feel, uh, foolish not to take. Yep. And, I, and I get that. It sounds like that's what you were doing.
0: Yeah, that's what I was doing. And, and the, the challenge has been, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because I, th- I think we're getting into rarefied air here, but updating that script Right, because I—it's not the only example of me panic selling, and I panic sold other things. I mean, panic sold is very dramatic, but I emotionally sold other things. Alibaba, you know, I was—I invested early in Alibaba. There were, but pre-IPO, and all sorts of companies that I sold once they got, once they went public, and it has taken a lot of reflection and training and planning. That's, that's number one for me. Have a plan, right? Don't go into a fight with no plan, then get hit and try to figure out your game plan. Have a plan going in. So I've, I've done that in the last few years, and I've not, uh, I've not panic sold or emotionally sold anything in the last few years. That's a lot easier to say, of course, now that I have more security. But the point is, even after the point that I had more security, I was still... I had not updated my OS, right? My operating system Mm -hmm. was still like Windows 95, like panic, panic, crash, panic, crash. And I had to become aware of that before I could change anything. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, So you are a hundred times better than I am in the public markets and you've been very comfortable. In the public markets for a very long time, from from my perspective, at least what I've seen. I mean, you're 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 a very rare breed of investor because you are successful across many different classes and many different assets. Uh, so you can go super early stage. I mean, white paper early or back of the napkin early, all the way up to mature public. And I've seen you hit home runs in almost every. Every, uh, every band of, of investment in terms of size and also in terms of technology, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been very impressive to watch. And I have to first admit to myself, lest I get my face ripped off, that I'm not you, <laughs> right? Like, I just have a different, different way of approaching this stuff. Uh so yeah
1: I mean dude the, you'll you'll laugh at some of the grammar I write you in emails so we all have our strengths and weaknesses <laughs> like <laughs> some some of the things that I produce on other fronts are are laughable so yeah. you know I think it's just kind of knowing what those pieces are and 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 playing to your strengths you know
0: Yeah yeah play to, you can you can you can fuck up a lot as long as you play to your core strengths and make a few good decisions I mean, once a year, once every few years in the startup investing game, right? Like you can, yeah. if if you, hopefully they're not all predicated on luck, but if you, if you have a decent process, right? Like you said, you missed out on Netflix. doesn't matter, right? Like if you right. hit a home run, you can strike out. If you hit a few home runs that are real home runs, right? Which you have, you can strike out a whole lot. And that is... Well, and you expect to, you know? Yeah. It's like... Or, better yet, the out. of the game. Right? You can miss out. That's a better way to put it. Like, you can pick, you can wait for the fat pitches. And if you have rules and certain systems, which I've seen you use, which has been the impressive part, right? If someone's just consistently lucky, I can't model that, right? And I know those people too. You and I both know those people where it's like, yeah. All right. That article paints them as a genius, but we all know that they, they like flipped a coin after drinking a bottle of tequila and then, like, <laughs> here we are. So. Uh, I can't model that type of dumb luck. And there are some people who just seem to like be hardwired for incredible luck. I don't know what that's about. We both know a few of those, too, where it's just like pot of gold falling out of the sky into their lap every two years. I just don't know what that's about. And then there are the people who have rules, and they have systems, and they have criteria. And uh, I think you've done really well with that. So that's, that's something I've always Watched with with admiration, and that is something that I've tried to model, but not by duplicating all of your rules, but simply having rules it certainly helps. Yeah, it, helps a lot.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that the the one thing I want to emphasize on that last little piece that we talked about on the investing side, the reason why eighty percent of my stuff is in you know standard boring index funds, bond funds, things like that, is because I know how risky. The rest of it is, and uh, you know, I expect to lose a lot of it. So I would never advocate. Well, first of all, I'm not, I'm not in the, even in the position to give investment advice. I'm not legally allowed to. But I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't advocate, you know, investing more than you can lose because you n- you never know. Because there's so many other factors. You can have the best company on earth, and you could have a downturn in the market that's going to last a decade, and you're still going to be underwater. And so it's, you know, you always have to
0: factor that in as well. Yeah. I'm still, I would consider myself super conservative. And I I also want to emphasize, or maybe clarify is the right word, that you talk about ultra risky, right? 20% ultra risky. And it's true that each of those bets you place independently could be considered ultra risky. But you, maybe you could speak to this, but I mean, you also have a portfolio approach and certain advantages, right? Informational advantage and so on. I'm not talking about uh, any public stuff, but with with these super early stage companies with different types of, of currencies and so on, uh, meaning cryptocurrencies and, and uh, blockchain and whatnot, that you have, you think about portfolio construction and you think about allocation. You think about bet sizing right so that mm-hmm. these individually ultra risky bets when viewed in total uh, underscore the possibility that each of them could say return the fund so to speak mm-hmm. right right so even though it's an ultra risky it's a, it's a collection of ultra risky assets the way that you approach it while still risky certainly, uh, stands a very high likelihood of success, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's a classic venture rule that you know it depends on whose math you're looking at, but you know eighty 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 plus percent of the deals that you do will go to zero, you know. But the ones that do make it, you're hoping are are the massive you know thousand x kind of fund makers that that you that you can find, especially at the really early stage, but. um yeah that's that's part of part of getting comfortable with all that is is saying goodbye and not taking it you know when when things don't work out and and not taking it personally. just realize it's the, the riskiest thing that you can do and some of the biggest mistake I see angel investors make without a doubt is they go out and do two deals. They go out and do three deals. You know they'll say, I would much rather and this is how I started out in the early days, I went out and placed five to ten thousand dollar bets which on, from an angel's point of view is, is really minimal dollars because you know most Silicon Valley angels are doing 25 to 100K you know, chunks uh, when they invest in a startup. I didn't have that kind of money, but I knew the math. And the math is that most of them are going to go to zero. And so if that's the case, rather than have two companies at 25K apiece and say, I'm done... I'd rather you know go out and have a whole dozen of them at a much lower you know five to ten thousand dollar kind of range and have a greater chance that I will find one of those crazy unicorns that's going to return all the 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 rest of them so so, or cover for the rest of them so that um, whenever I meet someone that's looking to get into that side of investing on the angel side it's always uh, do more at at uh, with less dollars in. And then if you have the opportunity to buy up in the future with, with Pro rata, and you do see something that looks like it's going to win, um, you could, because you're already on the cap table, you can you know, go in and, and purchase more shares um, in future rounds of financing.
0: Yeah, we're getting, we're getting into the, the nitty gritty here. But yeah. yes, that, that could be a whole separate conversation on reserving a portion of your sort of annual budget for follow-on. With the prorata and all that, but we won't. We 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 can save that for for our next random show.
1: Yeah, uh, one thing that I, a last little thing I will say that I think is is more broadly applicable is you mentioned like how do you decide when to sell, yeah. and this could be applied to to public market investing, which most people are comfortable with. You know, when your allocation in that in that risky, ultra risky category outpaces and outgrows where all of a sudden that was 20% but now it's actually 40% of your portfolio then you need to rebalance and that's that's when you can do that
0: yeah the most fun is when you're ultra risky has you locked up so all of a sudden you're like 90% <laughs> you can't sell a goddamn thing that's always a really <laughs> stress-free experience uh very important that is an important point and um uh, what should we close with? Any last thoughts? I mean, one one takeaway that I've had from the last ten years, and I have actually become much better at this—much uh, better at following my own advice. I remember Sam Harris once—I think he said to me, or maybe he wrote it somewhere—but that you know, wisdom is largely taking your own advice. <laughs> yeah. There's a quote, and I can't remember the attribution. Somebody on the internet can certainly tell us, and I'll put it in the show notes, but that living well is the best revenge, that quote has really been important to me in the last few years. And it comes back to what what we were discussing, or what I was saying much earlier about treating myself with anger and trying to really replace that with more acceptance and understanding and compassion, uh, which I always focused outward. I never really focused it inward. And a byproduct of that Meaning being less angry with myself was trying to cultivate directing less anger at other people also, and I was never a yell and scream throw plates against the wall kind of guy, but I would feel intense anger uh, when I was wronged or felt wronged, right and I mean if you 've been in the business world long enough or if you've had enough relationships, like you 've been fucked at some point <laughs> and, not mm-hmm. in the, and not in the good way, and I would get very I would get very upset and I would uh, fantasize. I wouldn't always actualize, but I'd fantasize about the kind of eye for an eye type retaliation. And the reality was that that I, I very, very rarely indulged in that. But
1: you rarely took eyes. I very rarely took. It I
0: very rarely took eyes. Uh, as Colonel Hackworth, what's his first name? <laughs> I'm blanking. Once that sometimes it is entirely appropriate to smash a mosquito with a sledgehammer, something like that, or smash a fly with a sledgehammer. I think there is a time and place for that, don't get me wrong. But, you know, one doesn't want to set precedent in some unfavorable way. But the, the point being that I've, been, I've become much better, and I'm not going to mention this person by name, but very well-known person has, as a reminder on his screensaver, on his laptop, let it go. And this is a very accomplished person. I actually consider him to be very zen and emotionally resilient and calm. Nonetheless, he has that reminder, let it go, on his desktop. And I have realized, tying in this energetic management, that... Like, living well is the best revenge. If someone's really fucked you and they're that person, chances are they're not very happy, right? That's not always the case. There are some super aggressive, Dr. Evil, narcissist uh, assholes who are quite happy. I hate to tell people out there, but they do exist. Nonetheless, a lot of the people who do awful things or break their word or whatever are pretty miserable. And like letting them wallow in their own misery and not engaging because it will contaminate your experience uh, has been really key for me. Letting it go uh, to the extent yeah. possible, right? And and just like living well is the best revenge has, has really stuck with me, right? Like the best thing you I can think, do is, yeah, live your life.
1: I think what you just said was, is really, uh, it's, it's interesting in that the way I've always looked at it is, if someone is being very verbally aggressive with you or angry or, or trying to push their energy onto you, if you take that and carry it on and then release it to other people, you're just furthering their agenda of spreading that that energy and it's it's letting it go is just the ability to actually set them free in a way you're yeah. releasing that negative energy and you're just like letting it dissipate yeah. and it's such a freeing thing yeah you know it's a beautiful thing if you think of it like that
0: yeah you you've taught me a lot uh, with this in certain instances I remember I got attacked by some some troll, as trolls will do, uh, many years ago. This is a long time ago. Yeah, I remember and this. And I think, well, let's see. You might have a different example, but wh- and you said something like, uh, you know, "Tim, do you do you really want to engage in a fight with someone with infinite time?" And I was like, "No, I don't." When you phrase it that way, like, absolutely not. And. You've given me uh because of course coming out of coming out of dig and sort of early days, you had far more mileage with yeah <laughs> online well I remember yeah,
1: I don't know if you remember this, but I think I told you also that I was like, when was the last time you've left? A negative comment on somebody's blog. I've been like "fuck you" on somebody's blog oh, and right. like yeah. anonymously. Yeah. And it's like uh, I don't think I've ever done Never. that. Yeah, yeah, because you're not that kind of person. <laughs> yeah, right. Like think of like the kind of person that is engaging with you here, and yeah. you don't need to. It's just the the one thing people don't realize about the internet, and that I learned through a school of hard knocks is that. Just like in society, if you were to go and put five hundred people in a room, there are going to be some assholes in that room, right. some like completely dicks that are mean-spirited people that want to see other people in misery. The internet is no different. Yeah. Like you get a group of people of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and there are groups of very evil people. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you can, if you know that, then you can just be like, "Oh, that's just one of those evil people," you yeah. know?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's you know, when you walk by them on the sidewalk, you may not notice but they're there and uh I to, you know another quote that is kind of stuck with me and i'm blanking on the attribution this is a very famous quote uh but the paraphrase is you know don't wrestle with pigs because it just makes it makes you filthy and it makes the pig happy and it's just like, oh interesting and it's like yeah like there's 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 nothing to be there's very little to be, to be gained from engaging with that um so
1: Yeah, so my final quote for the day yeah. uh, on my side, since you gave yours, um, is from that Michael Singer course that I took on Surrender, which I think is a phenomenal video course. But he says something in there that stuck with me, um, where he says, serve the moment, which I thought was really interesting. Um, it, just this idea of being so present that you are just serving that moment in time. Uh, it's just a beautiful thing if you can pull it off.
0: How do you, how do you use that? I like I like the I like the sort of connotation of that but did do you use I that with yourself about,
1: yeah I just think like where's my head right now you know am I really giving my focus and attention and brain space to what's going on right now am I serving those people around me to the fullest at this point Point in time. Yeah. And that can mean simple things from paying attention to my daughter when she's playing and engaging with that versus being on my phone. Yeah. Um, you know, to th- worrying about something or thinking about something in the future that may or may not happen to, you know, wanting to gouge somebody's eye out, like we mentioned. Like th- those are that's not serving the moment. That's, that's serving the <laughs> imaginary land, you know?
0: Yeah. It's fighting with sock puppets. Yeah. He, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I really meant it earlier when I said I was, I was really struck. Because you've seen me through many chapters. I've seen you through many chapters over many years. And there have been times when I've, I've seen you, and this is the contrast, right? I've, there, were, there was a time when if you were sitting down with sort of nothing, no project to work on, I would see you on your phone. And when I was home with you, I came up and you were just sitting there sipping tea, looking at your daughter, playing with blocks or whatever she was doing, unrushed and fully paying attention. And that might sound quaint. It might sound simple. But if we look at the technological forces and the financial incentives and the funding and market caps of these companies and the armies of PhDs who are attempting to do just about anything to make that impossible, it becomes all the more noteworthy, I think, and all the more valuable to have practices and reminders that help you to have those kind of moments. Right. Yeah,
1: absolutely. uh,
0: I'm happy for you, man. It's, uh, it's been really nice to see you. Same
1: dude. I mean, I didn't notice, we didn't say this on the show earlier, but I'm really stoked. Um, who, with your girlfriend now that shall go unnamed. Uh, (laughs) she's, she's amazing. I got a chance to hang out with her and meet her, you know, when you're out here and it's, uh, it's really cool to see you happy and, and, uh, it's, it's been fun. It's, I'm excited for you to have babies soon. So <laughs> That's all I'll say.
0: <laughs> well, you know, it may not be that far off. We shall see. We shall see. But, um, nice to uh, see your face and hear your voice, brother. As yeah. always, uh, please give, uh, give my love to the fam and, um, you want to share any, any particular resources or point people anywhere if they'd like to learn what you're up to or see what you're yeah, up to? Yeah, I'd say
1: most of the stuff I, I publish, uh, I do on Instagram. So I'm just Instagram at Kevin Rose. Um, and then, yeah, definitely check out the uh, the iOS app, Less, L-E-S-S, Less Drinking. Uh, I think it'll help you, uh, those of you out there that uh, want to be a little bit mi- more mindful about the beverages you consume. Um, it's just a fun little little project we're working on. Yeah. Oh, 102 for intermittent fasting we get, Dude, we hit, I don't even think I told you this We hit 1.3 million Monthly fasters now Not fasts, but people fasting People, on yeah. zero.
0: That's incredible Yeah, so that's,
1: yeah we added 300,000 people
0: this last uh, uh, 30 days Wow So it's, it's, it's nuts I need your help with my email list uh, That's incredible, <laughs> congratulations And uh, I'm excited for 2020 I'm really excited about yeah. it and uh, yeah, I don't. I don't have uh, much. Everybody can find me at tim.blog and uh, check out the writing. I'm going to be doing more writing. Certainly, love the podcast. I'm going to continue to do that, but in service of eventually getting to the point where I'm working on this book on healing and psycho-emotional dynamics in a very concrete way. I mean, it's not going to be highfalutin conceptual. It'll be like in the trenches. With some crazy, 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 crazy fucking stories. I mean, if you imagine a kind of four-hour body, but for mind and the mind. mind and emotion, yeah, it's it would be like that, but much crazier, much.
1: Are you, are you using four-hour in it anywhere? Yeah. I think I think, <laughs> I, I, think <laughs> I think I'm
0: retiring the four-hour jersey. You're retiring the four hour? I'm retiring
1: the four-hour jersey. Yeah. I, I, it's like I still get joy out of it whenever I see four hours somewhere. Like I remember when I saw the Four Hour Cleaners in San Francisco. And I sent you a photo of it.
0: Yeah, I remember that. It's on Lombard I like, or whatever. I want you to be
1: known for that forever?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we 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 think we think we know what we're doing, and then we're like, oh my god, the blessing and the curse that will chase me forever. Here it is. Exactly. Uh, but you know, they're they're certainly far far worse far worse yeah. prefixes. So I'll take it for now. But. uh Love doing the random show, man. Let's do more of these, and uh, yeah, let's uh, let's meet up in person before too long.
1: Let's do it. Sounds good.
0: Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. These days, as you know, the million messages per minute, not enough hours in the day, how do you really catch people's attention? This is where LinkedIn can help. With LinkedIn ads, you can catch the right professionals, the right people at the right time, and I'll tell you how I'm using them personally in a minute. LinkedIn ads can drive traffic to landing pages, for instance, engagement, and for many of you, most importantly, conversions, whether that's registrations for an event, downloads of white papers and eBooks, or other important metrics. Me, personally, I'm gonna be testing LinkedIn ads to drive signups to my free newsletter, Five Bullet Friday, which I've realized drives just about everything else. With precise targeting through LinkedIn, Entrepreneurs, startups, and SMBs—that's small, medium-sized businesses—can better and more cost-effectively reach the people who matter to them specifically. With more than 62 million decision makers on LinkedIn, you're able to connect with the business leaders or just the target audience who are most relevant to your company and deliver a clear call to action. That's always where I focus a lot of my energy. Obviously, headline and call to action. LinkedIn ads allows you to cut through the clutter and ensure your messages are getting through to the people you most want to target. So huge, medium medium. medium-sized, and small businesses alike are all making the most out of LinkedIn ads. Entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, you name it. So try it for yourself. LinkedIn is offering a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit to launch your first campaign. Simply visit linkedin.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss Show. Again, that's linkedin.com slash TFS. Terms and conditions apply. This episode of The Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by Calm. I once asked LeBron James, you've probably heard of him, what is the single most important element of his training regimen? And I may have edged into it slightly differently, but in effect, that's what I was asking. And uh, you know what he said? He did not say wind sprints, cryotherapy, maybe? Egg white omelets with a side of butternut squash? No, no, and although it sounds delicious, no. What he focused on, what he said was sleep. Whether you're an athlete, programmer, or student, healthy sleep. That is, restorative sleep is essential to peak performance. It strengthens your immune system, improves cognitive function, problem-solving, decision-making. It gives you creativity and energy, or at least certainly fosters all those things that you want to bring into your day. And I've suffered with sleep, or I should say poor sleep, for a very long time, and have sought out different tools to help me optimize and improve, not just the duration, but the quality of my sleep. And as a lot of us know, there's a common problem. Sound sleep is a rare thing. And this is particularly true when you're hyper-caffeinated, hyper-connected, hyper-stimulated in a modern digital world. But there is a place to get rest, and that is Calm, the number one app for sleep, downloaded by more than 60 million people. It's really easy to download. Just download Calm, and you'll find a whole library of programs designed to help you with healthy sleep. Like soundscapes, guided meditations, and more than 100 sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like those of LeVar Burton and Nick Offerman. Right now, listeners of The Tim Ferriss Show, that's you guys. Get 40% off a Calm Premium subscription at calm.com tim. That's cal mcom tim. To quote LeBron himself, you want to seize the day, you got to sleep the night. Check it out. Go to calm.com tim. Get calm and get better sleep. Time to restore.